Welcome in, everyone. Hello, everybody. This is Everything Sucks, Let's Fix It, episode 23. My name is Ben Mayer. My name is Anthony Buono. Today is November 8th, 2023, and we are coming off the election night of 2023. Very exciting. Very, dude, I am the biggest election junkie i it is a holiday for me i told ben he wanted to hang out and watch harry potter and i was like no dude i'm sorry i have a date uh that night i can't do it and he's like a date with who i'm like uh, a six pack and my computer screen and so i just sat back filled up my whiteboard with all the different stats i wanted to reference throughout the night and just stayed up until everything was called yeah some people have sports betting you have elections yeah i, I have elections but i'm just i'm betting nobody i'm just yelling at myself in my room alone exactly yeah <laughs> so let's start with virginia now virginia was very, very important in 2021. When Glenn Youngkin won that governorship over Terry McAuliffe in 2021, people thought that was a really, really bad sign for Democrats nationally. And they had good reason to think that. Normally, when the Virginia governorship goes to the party out of power, that's a sign for a very, very strong midterm. But when the midterm election came along, Glenn Youngkin's victory was not a bellwether for anything, right? So now, this test in Virginia is, can Glenn Youngkin, a moderate Republican, at least at his face, be able to carry over Virginia and Virginia Republicans into power? So what he really wanted to do was flip the state leg- the state Senate and take con- and hold on to his majority in the Virginia House of Delegates. Now, the flipping the state Senate was going to be difficult. The way that the lines are drawn, it was always going to be hard. But they had a pretty great shot at holding on to the House of Delegates. And uh, Glenn Youngkin promised that if he won the House of Delegates and he won the state Senate, he would institute a 15-week abortion limit. And what's interesting about this race is Glenn Youngkin really changed the language on abortion stuff. He dropped the word restriction. He dropped the word ban. He said, we're doing an abortion limit. And that was kind of a battle test of how Republicans can handle this issue going forward in 2024. Mm. And what we saw is it didn't work out that well. No, not at all. We saw the Democrats hold on to their Senate, their Senate majority, and flip the House of Delegates. So now the Democrats control both chambers of the Virginia legislature. Um, This is not what Glenn Youngkin wanted. It's not what the Republicans expected either. No, and it's... It's interesting because of Glenn Youngkin's potential presidential hopes in the future. It's a well-known secret that he's been eyeing a run. He was probably considering running in 2024, but if not, with an eye on 2028. And he was hoping that he could build up his resume by flipping both um, both of these legislatures to red. And now that's kind of out the window. Exactly. Now he's kind of tainted as... Not a loser, because he didn't lose that bad. And mm-hmm. I don't want to frame it as Virginia Democrats had this amazing 10 out of 10 blockbuster night. Virginia Democrats had a 6 out of 10 night. They had a good night. They flipped the House of Delegates. That's great. But they only flipped it by like one seat. They only hold, held on to the Senate by one seat. They didn't even perform as well as Joe Biden performed in 2020. Not even close, you know. So they did well, no doubt. But it's not like Democrats had a blockbuster night in Virginia. It's just not true. Um, Glenn Youngkin went on TV last night during the elections, and he said that he would not nominate Donald Trump before the end of the Republican primary. So he's still holding out hope that it won't be Trump, which is just 
such a lost cause at this point. I, yeah, I wonder if he's holding out hope. Um, just trying to appeal more to what he sees as a more middling voter base. Yeah. I think um, maybe paying attention to all the polls that say voters hate both Trump and Biden. Yeah, and we'll get into that because that yeah. information came in throughout the night. And God, they hate both of them, man. Yeah. God, I hate both of them. Absolutely. One race I want to call into attention is uh, uh, Susanna Gibson in House District 57. She made kind of headlines because... oh. Uh, she ended up losing, but it was one of the closest races in the House of Delegates. Uh, mm. As of a couple minutes ago, the Republican has flipped it from Susan Gibson's lead, and now the Republican has taken the seat. So that was the Democrats' chance of expanding that 51 majority to a 52. That That's gone now. So mm. that's kind of what's going down in Virginia. Overall, yeah. good night for Democrats, not blockbuster. Yeah. You know what is blockbuster? The Kentucky governor race. Yes. So a couple months ago, when we first started this podcast, I mentioned Andy Bashir as a moderate that I actually kind of like. Mm -hmm. And I remember having conversations with my dad and members of my family. And they're like, who do you want to see run for president? And I'm like, I would love to see Andy Bashir in 2028. And yeah. why? Because he's a Democrat who can win in places like Kentucky. He's not a complete sellout like most or some blue dogs like Manchin or Kirsten Cinema. She he's not like that. Um, he has a genuine pretty good track record. And last night, just more evidence in his favor, he beat his opponent opponent Daniel Cameron by five something points. Yeah, this was absolutely nuts because Bashir is the only Democrat to win on this entire ballot. Every single other statewide race went Republican. And Bashir still maintains his hold on the governor, the governorship. Yeah, it's crazy. Now, look, it is he. he it's hard to unseat an incumbent governor, right? That's mm -hmm. a very difficult thing to do. But the fact that he won by over five points mm -hmm. is tan tantamount to his political talent and the messaging that he's employing. Yeah, and so he really ran as this good government nonpartisan guy. His main line was a bridge doesn't have a party affiliation, right? There's no such thing as a Democrat or a Republican bridge. Yeah. That sounds like Joe Biden rhetoric to me. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of honestly Andy Bashir has the rhetoric and the and the uh the reputation that Joe Biden wish he could have. Yeah. And right? Andy Bashir is like like Joe Biden with a face that's 25 years younger. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So Daniel Cameron, Bashir's opponent was the prior attorney general um, endorsed by Donald Trump in the primary and was honestly like McConnell's baby. Really? McConnell has been preparing Daniel Cameron for larger office really? for, a, for a decade now. Was he like a McConnell aide? He was, a, was, he was he... a McConnell, I think he was a McConnell intern when he was in college. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, Don, Daniel Cameron has been around McConnell for a while and McConnell has been raising him up to be a rising star for the party. Mm. Um, his career isn't over with this loss. But it's definitely hindered. Yeah, obviously hurts. Yeah, and yeah. so now he doesn't have any political office, so he's gonna have to take some time off and see his next move. Yeah. Um. But I, I want to talk a little bit more about Bashir and kind of why I like him as a Democratic moderate, because again, he's not somebody who becomes a moderate by going back on liberal and progressive values. He doesn't fight against it. It's just not his main focus. But when push comes to shove. He does a lot of the right things. Mm -hmm. One example of this is during the UAW strike. We've covered the United Auto Workers strike a lot, and we're going to talk about the United Auto Workers in great detail this episode. Um, and 
Andy Bashir made an amazing move as the sitting governor to join the UAW strike picket lines. He went there and he said that I am here for you. He got the UAW endorsement and the UAW has emphatically supported Andy Bashir. And if the UAW is going to emphatically support you, I'm probably going to emphatically support you too. Yeah, absolutely. The fact that you can somehow still straddle this line, that Bashir can straddle this line of being a clearly pro-union governor and still maintaining the office in what is solidly a red state, a state that solidly voted for Donald Trump in each of the past two elections, is incredible. It needs to be a Democratic superstar on their side of the aisle. Absolutely. And this needs to be a showing to all the other moderate Democrats around the country on how to be a good moderate. Yes. This is how you do it. Mm -hmm. You don't be a good moderate by going back on unions. That's not how you be a good moderate. Mm -mm. That's not it. The, the good moderate is able to pull in that white working class vote on top of the people of color working class vote. And that's how you're able to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, then the question comes up, like, is do you think he could be a 2028 contender? I'm just curious what you think. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Too. I, I like, again, we talked about this with Biden. He's a progressive with a moderate face uh-huh. or with a moderate voice. Right. He has figured out how to nail the messaging where people aren't scared of the immense change he's going to make, but he's also going to appoint people, the right people, to positions that they need to be in to move the progressive agenda forward. Absolutely. Andy Bashir during his um, victory speech, the first thing he said was, time to give our teachers a raise. Like, that's awesome. Yes, like, that's, that's exactly what we want. That's exactly what we want, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that progressives aren't going to be super happy seeing like, oh man, what the hell, you guys like some... Democrat governor from Kentucky, but that's like not what it's about, though. Yeah, well, I guess the the counter argument to what we are saying is, um, what's the word, the term for the window of like what's okay to talk about? The Overton window. The Overton window, yeah. right? They want someone who's going to move the True. Overton window, right? True. Biden really isn't that person. Bashir probably wouldn't be that person. No. Um. So it is. It's fair. It's like we would need other people to take up that mantle right and we say this a lot though like there is a place for hardcore lefties and hardcore progressives in our government and that place is really in the house of representatives Mm -hmm. right like that's where i feel like that's that type of politician who's on the more radical end who wants to be the fiery voice Mm -hmm. can do its most good without risking the whole party up and down the ballot yeah yeah so but i do understand progressives thinking like you said like I don't want to be stuck in this center where we can only elect a, uh, you know, a moderate white dude from the middle of the country. I don't like that precedent. Yeah, like, I understand where they're coming from with that. There definitely, I, I think there probably is a way to do both. I think there is a way to communicate really progressive values without completely alienating the other side. Yeah. Um, but I'm not sure exactly who does that because. Part of being kind of a militant progressive almost tends to be having really fiery rhetoric about how dangerous and horrible the other side is. That's very true. And that's alienating in and of itself. Yeah. The fiery rhetoric, the language like the world is burning, the language like we're Mm -hmm. at war, it's important, but... It, it, it's important, I guess, to have because well, the, 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 the feeling of urgency needs to be prominent. 
Well, it's important to galvanize the base, yeah. but it's not effective in winning votes from the center. Right. It's not good at persuasion, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Right? But I, I do think, like, I feel like what we try to do on this show, part of why we like doing this show, is because we want to be voices that, like, sound extremely reasonable and level-headed in communicating why the progressive course is correct. Those are the people that I most want in government. I totally agree with you. Yeah. All right. Next, we are going over to look at the state of Pennsylvania. We saw a very interesting result and a very interesting race in the state of Pennsylvania. We saw a race for the state Supreme Court. Um, This race wasn't going to decide the balance of the Supreme Court. It was going to be Democrat either way. But what this does do is pretty much confirm that the Democrats and the liberals will hold the, the Pennsylvania state Supreme Court until 2030. That's huge. That's huge. Yeah. That's huge. And obviously, this comes off the back of a lot of legal challenges, legal challenges related to civil rights, voting rights, abortion rights, Mm -hmm. um, labor rights. All these things are coming to a head. And state judiciaries, these elections have gotten more and more prominent um, over the years. It's really interesting. Mm. I mean, like now it's like a state state Supreme Court race is coming up, um, whether it's in Wisconsin or Michigan or Pennsylvania. And the university campus kids are lining up out the door to vote now. Yeah. You know, they're really mobilized around these judicial races because we've, it's become so much more prominent in our lives. Yeah. People just understand they've seen what the, the national Supreme court does. So they see the kind of power that the state ones can have as well. Yeah. So Pennsylvania is interesting because they do elect their Supreme court justices. Obviously we don't elect Supreme court justices naturally. They get appointed by the president. Some states that get appointed by the governor, but Pennsylvania is one of the states where you vote them. And you don't just vote them. They're also partisan. They run as a Democrat and they run as a Republican to get on to the Supreme Court. So this is a very partisan election. And the results were interesting to me because McCaffrey, the Democrat, was very, very pro-abortion rights. He was very, very pro-labor. Labor unions backed him very hard. The, the Republican tried to run to the center on abortion. Um, she said that the abortion issue doesn't even matter because the state constitution protect, protects abortion up to 24 weeks. Mm. So she kind of avoided the issue. Might have been a really good response, to be honest. It might not actually matter. If the state constitution says 24 weeks in the constitution, it might not matter how she feels. True. But it's a terrible look to not answer the question on, a, on, a, on an ad, right? Yes. Um, so the way that the Democrats won this election is shocking to me. The Democrats kicked butt. In the suburbs, Bucks County, Montgomery County, Allegheny County, um, obviously Philadelphia urban areas, they did great. But they didn't do great in the rural areas. And this is the first time in my lifetime that I can remember watching an election and a Democrat won Pennsylvania without winning Erie County in the northwest of the state. They did not win Erie County. And that's so interesting to me because Erie County of Pennsylvania is supposed to be the swing county. Whoever wins Erie wins Pennsylvania. Really? And the Democrats didn't win Erie, but they still won by eight points. Wow. And that's just like a, that, that, that tells me two things. It tells me first that Republicans didn't show up to vote. A lot of these rural areas, these hardcore Trump, hardcore MAGA areas in these rural communities just didn't show up to vote in the same numbers that they would normally. Mm -hmm. Um, Next thing, the Democrats kicked butt in the suburbs in a way that, is showing that Republicans are not fixing their post-Trump suburban problem. 
At least in Pennsylvania. At least in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Because in New York, it's a different story. Mm-hmm. New York suburbs, super Republican yesterday. I mean, mm. ridiculous. The okay. entirety of Long Island is ruby red. Interesting. Yeah. I wonder where that's, like, where the discrepancy lies there. I think it's because of the notion, like, everyone is afraid of New York being this, like, crime hellhole. Yeah. Even though it's, like, not, you know? But mm. this is my, my county back home, Suffolk County in New York, um, it elected a Republican as county commissioner for the first time in, like, two decades. Wow. You know? So there is definitely Republican momentum in New York. But Pennsylvania, where it's a swing state, more important on the national scale when we talk about national politics, right? Um, Allegheny County, the Pittsburgh area, had more votes than the Philadelphia urban area, which blows my mind. Why is Pittsburgh netting Democrats more votes than Philadelphia? That means Democrats have a problem, too. Democrats have a black turnout problem. Mm. And they need to solve that before the next presidential election. Is More, it turnout or is it support? No, it's turnout. Okay. The por- the proportion is fine. It's like 87% Democrat, 13% Republican. That's fine. Okay. The margin is fine. Um, Not the margin. That's not the right word for it. The proportions are fine. It's the margin that's the issue. It's not enough. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, You're not netting enough votes, even if you're winning it by so much, because just not as many people are voting. Okay. And... Maybe this means that low propensity voters aren't coming out to these special and these off-year elections, and now the Democrat coalitions are more aligned to the frequent voter base, right? Democrat coalition has changed over the last two decades here. Democrats are now um, a little richer, a little more money, they're more suburban, they are uh, more educated than ever, and that group of people are more likely to go vote than any other and because the democrats now have those guys woven into their big tent here it makes them a lot more likely to win in these off-year elections okay you know and they're not as reliant on these off-year elections on the black vote they're not as reliant on the urban vote on the poor vote they're more reliant on the suburban vote for these off-year elections i see interesting that's the trend i'm seeing if that's a good strategy i don't know i mean what what does it mean if democrats become the party of the elite high propensity college educated voter and just more and more and more falls into this trap of looking like the out-of-touch elite coastal liberal Mm, it's not a good look it's not Um, a good look but i do i'm okay with it as long as the values of the party don't change Right, right. The values of the party still certainly lie with the the working class urban person. Definitely much more than the Republican Party, that's yeah. for sure. And I just don't want. I don't. I. I. I just get nervous on those general election days. Are Democrats going to be caught by surprise? Because we see all these victories, and is it all a mirage until the low propensity voters come back to the polls and you haven't made you haven't stuck your progress with them? That's just what makes me nervous. I see. All right. So Democrats have done very well in Pennsylvania, winning by eight points. Another state Democrats did really well in Ohio. Um, Ohio had two important issues on the ballot this time around, legalizing marijuana and ins- and uh, putting abortion rights into the state constitution. Those are the two important things. Um, well, both passed by a lot. Um, the Democrats were able to enshrine abortion rights into the Constitution with 57%, and then legalizing weed was able to pass with, like, 58%. Mm -hmm. So overwhelming margins. Um, And this, again, just really throws down the Republican throat of 
how are you going to respond to these abortion questions when you get asked? Yeah. What are you going to do? Glenn Youngkin just tried. Glenn Youngkin tried to change it from ban to limit, from restriction to 15 weeks, uh, and it didn't work. He still lost both houses of the legislature. Mm -hmm. So what is the new line? Well, CNN last night. Sorry, go ahead. No, it's all right. No, I think you should go first. So CNN last night, during the election, pulls Vivek Ramaswamy on TV to tell us uh, what the great political maneuver needs to be, Um, the political mastermind himself. Uh, He's asked, what does the pro-life movement need to do? And he does two things to this. He says he wants to put more financial responsibility on the fathers. He wants to, you know, penalize fathers who leave their families, um, which... uh, that's something. Does that address abortion at all? Does that even, I feel like that didn't even like talk about the, the notion of abortion, but that's fine. And then he says something else. He's, he attacks referendums at, completely. Vivek Ramaswamy just comes out against the notions of referendums because he says that they're too easy to buy with poli- with money. Um, as if like it's easier to buy a referendum than it is for uh, an individual politician to spend money and win somebody's vote. Yeah, I don't get that at all. He just came out completely against referendums. I think it's I think it's much harder to buy a referendum unless the idea is that every individual person is much easier to manipulate and influence than a single representative is. Yeah, which I, I disagree. I totally with. disagree with. Yeah, I mean, it's like you can kind of fool somebody by getting them to vote for a candidate because they don't really like know that much about the issues, but mm-hmm. they see their ad on TV all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're talking about a ballot measure that is literally just the issue in a sentence, vote up or down, right? I feel like that's where money happens. Like It's going to have less of an effect. Yeah. Like How can you really cloud that at all? Yeah. It's, it's very clear what you're thinking about, what you're voting on. Right. Um, so that's going on in Ohio, but there were some interesting exit polls too. In the exit polls, 72% of voters said they don't want Joe Biden to run again, and 63% of voters said they don't want Donald Trump to run again. We're walking into the weirdest presidential election. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to me, that's that's very bad news for Biden. Oh, bad news for yeah. Biden. And what makes this so bad is that this Ohio election was a plus two Biden demographic. In the exit polls of all the people who voted yesterday in Ohio— Joe Biden won those people by two points. Wow. And 72% of them still think he should have run. Yeah. And of course, we've talked about before how we expect a lot of these people who say they don't want Biden to run will still vote for him. I expect a good amount. won't vote for Trump. Right. Um, so it's not completely indicative of what we would expect to see at the polls in 2024. But it isn't good for Biden. It's not right? good that someone so unexciting is at the top of the ticket sure that's not good it's not good that he has no ability at the moment to draw people in that can change there's a year right years a long time but joe biden's a known quantity yeah and i feel like the the democratic ticket is almost like they're starting to rely on abortion too much and i'm worried that 2024 is going to be the time when it's just a little far removed from roe v wade being overturned to still have the same kind of effect. Yeah. I also wonder if they could just manufacture a Republican who was pro-choice yeah. as well. Like, doesn't that seem like a perfect candidate? Yes, it does. It yeah. seems like a perfect candidate, but they will never win a primary. No. 
right? That's that's the Republicans' issue right now mm-hmm. is you can't win a primary being pro-choice. It's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, Donald Trump is the most pro-choice guy we've ever gotten, and he was still the one to re- return, overturn Roe v. Wade. Yeah. Well, you know who the closest thing right now is? is Nikki Haley. It's Nikki Haley. Yeah. And she wipes the floor with Biden in all of these polls. Mm-hmm. In, in all these polls, it's like, Trump leads by five, Trump leads by six or whatever, Trump leads by four, and then Nikki Haley up eight, 10, 12, mm-hmm. right? Nikki Haley's wiping the floor. But if Republicans could get off their ass and nominate Nikki Haley, Joe Biden would be dead in the water. Yeah. Totally. Definitely. I think he'd be screwed. Yeah. Um, so that's what's going on in Ohio. Next, I want to talk about the state of Maine. This is a very, very small election that no one's really paying attention to, but we talked about it a couple times on the show. So I want to bring it to attention. There was a ballot measure to nationalize the two private utility companies and bring them under um, proto-state control as a consumer-operated utility. Mm -hmm. Um, Didn't even come close to passing. Uh, It lost 70 to 30. So the private utility companies will live to see another day. Um, Kind of expected. I didn't really expect it to pass. Mm. It's a pretty intense thing to make a public electrical utility like that. That's definitely intense. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, America might not have the appetite for that yet, but it does make me happy to see that 30% of people are on board with it. Yeah, I guess. I, I wonder, like, in Vermont, could this have passed? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe, right? That's actually, that's a good test. Maybe this should have ha- shouldn't have happened in Maine. Maine has the, op- Maine, all, I, I don't know enough about Vermont's energy oh. utilities. Okay. So I'm not going to even, you know, go there. But I do know Maine's is easy because it's only two. True. Right. True. So I don't know, but Vermont's also tiny. Vermont also might only have like one or two. Yeah, so. it's tiny. I just think as far as their their populist kind of leaning closer mm-hmm. to the socialist side of the spectrum. Yeah. 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 Um. So that's Maine, and then the last election I want to talk about is Mississippi. Mississippi has been a very very interesting um, election season. Here we have a guy named Brandon Presley who is, yes, related to Elvis Presley. He was Elvis Presley's second cousin, um, running a very, very good Bashir-esque campaign. Mm. Stayed away from the cultural issues, stayed away from the the partisanship, and really ran on expanding Medicaid. He touted how expanding Medicaid would actually save the state money, how it would help so many people, and just really good populist messaging. Um, he was running against incumbent governor Tate Reeves. Tate Reeves uh, looks like Peter Griffin and is one of the worst fucking guys. Okay? Not going to not gonna hold back on him. Yeah. Tate Reeves is very corrupt. Um, his party apparatus uh, was caught funneling $77 million worth of welfare money. This is from the Temporary Assistance of Needy Families Fund that's given to the state by the federal government. And between 2017 and 2020, they funneled $77 million of this money into uh, other development pet projects that w- were not for the needy families. Um, one of the very famous ones is they gave a lot of money to Brett Favre uh, to build a girls' volleyball arena. Um, so that's a whole other thing. Mm-hmm. And so this was really a very weak incumbent with Tate Reeves. Brandon Presley really had a good opportunity. Uh, to take him down as much as you can have a good opportunity as a Democrat coming in from Mississippi. Um, But the polling was kind of indicative of a close race, and a close race is what we got. Brandon Presley did lose, 
but Brandon Presley did get closer to beating Tate Reeves than Daniel Cameron came within beating uh, Bashir in Kentucky. So that was a, Mississippi was a closer race than Kentucky, which is a really good sign. Um, I do have an issue with this election, though, and I think it's important to call it out when we see it, because this happens far too often in America. This election showed a lot of civil right and voting right issues, especially in the black uh, communities in Mississippi, specifically the city of Jackson. So the city of Jackson uh, is in Hines County. Hines County is 8% of the total population of Mississippi, a massive population center. Um, And each of these polling locations had about 60% of the registered voters in that precinct enough ballots for 60% of the registered voters in that precinct. They were running out of ballots extremely fast. So I'm going to read here from a news article on the topic here. State statutes require that the county has enough ballots to accommodate 60% of a precinct's voter base. Hines County Election Commissioner said voter turnout has been so high they have surpassed that percentage, forcing them to print more ballots and deliver them to the precincts that have run out. They couldn't estimate how many precincts ran out of ballots because calls have been coming in to the Hines County Election Commission all day from polling managers asking for more ballots. So here's just a few examples. We have one library that ran out of ballots at 645. We have another... Baptist Church that ran out of ballots at around 7 o'clock, 645. We have a city hall that ran out of ballots, another Methodist church that ran out of ballots at 3 p.m. We have Northern Baptist Church that were down to 100 ballots um, and have ran out of ballots three times throughout the day. Another church ran out of ballots, another church ran out of ballots, and a YMCA only had 100 ballots left and were given no estimated time on more arrivals. Um this is insane to me that these counties are having trouble just getting ballots to people who have been waiting there for some reports of two and a half hours. Yeah. It's wrong, dude. I, I think the the statute of only having 60% of, like, ballots for 60% of the precinct's voters is extremely flawed. Extremely flawed. Right? I mean, I guess maybe this is the lesson. Like, like maybe they just now learned it, that we need more than that. Yeah. Um, I guess I understand not wanting to waste paper. I also I also just think voting should be much more electronic. Like, yeah. we are really a hundred years behind with mm-hmm. the voting technology that we have. Um, it's just, it's tough because I, I assume this, we're going to be one of the only places we're going to be the only thing i see that covers this oh yeah sure right so it's there's going to be no impetus for change because it's going to get very little attention Mm -hmm. and look i don't want to say this is like totally the statewide republicans fault because it's it's like the counties do run their own elections Mm -hmm. so maybe they could have had more ballots but the fact of the matter is the precincts only need to have 60 percent of the ballots to fall in line with the statute the statute's obviously flawed because 60 percent was too low of a number and while the lines were accumulating at these polling centers, uh, a judge ordered that the voting had to be open for another hour. Mm-hmm. And Republicans sued immediately trying to stop that from being allowed and tried to close the polls while there were still a bunch of people waiting online. Yeah. Which is just gross behavior. It's a very, it's a, but it's a typical Republican Party yeah. tactic. That's a right? typical they, move. Like we've, we've talked about this many times on this show. Part of their playbook is suppressing voters, mm-hmm. right? Um, 
which is entirely undemocratic, extremely slimy, just kind of detestable thing to do in a democracy. But it's not unexpected. Not unexpected. And it sucks. It sucks because, like, you watch Andy Bashir's victory speech. First thing he says is, you know, I want to pay teachers more. You look at a Brandon Presley speech. The main thing he's talking about is cutting the grocery tax, cutting the the car tax or something. Expanding and, Medicaid. And expanding Medicaid, <clears throat> which is huge. Mm-hmm. Tate Reese comes out in his victory speech. And the first thing he says is, like, no one thought I could do it, but here I am. And it's like, God, fuck you, dude. Yeah. Fuck you. Get some perspective. Um, last thing I want to say about the elections is the amount of money that was spent. Because Democrats have another advantage in this race that is very different from how it used to be. Mm. Democrats now have not only the more educated voter base, um, not, o- not only the more educated voter base, not only the more high propensity voter, they're also able to spend way more money. In the Kentucky governor's race, $77 million was spent. 50 million of those dollars were democratic dollars yeah that's insane well what's wild here is as i look at this chart every in every single of these major races the party that spent more money was the winner true every single one true yeah yep ohio issue one democrats Virginia, spent kentucky yep. mississippi the republicans spent a million more pennsylvania supreme court Democrats spent 3.5 million more. Um, we've talked about campaign financing and the role we expect that has. I still right now land on the side that money tends to follow the winners instead of choose the winners. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, I don't know, it's another very clear. I'll say this, the Houston mayor race at the bottom, for the Houston mayor race, there was $8 million spent, $7.8 million. The Democrats spent 6.2. The unaffiliated spent 1.6. The unaffiliated did get more votes than the Democrat. Really? Yeah. The unaffiliated, technically re- kind of Republican, got more got more votes in Houston. So. And they're going to a runoff? They're going to a runoff. Okay. Yes. Okay, I didn't see that. Yeah. But that, it is interesting that the Democrats are raising more money, spending more money, and it obviously helped them pull it over in Virginia. That's for damn sure. Yeah, maybe, maybe this is, I mean, you said the the democratic voter base is getting a little richer they're Mm -hmm. getting a little bit more educated maybe they're starting to find themselves in greater positions of power and privilege now so that they can contribute to campaigns like this i think that's what's happening to be honest yeah it's really interesting even the the small dollar donors for democrats are just massive compared to republican small dollar donors Mm. it's not even like close you know like the whole act blue thing makes it so easy for a democrat to raise money it's just God, that's funny because I've donated to Act Blue, and after donating, they bombard me Bar. with texts and emails, and it is so annoying and it is so discouraging it's from discouraging. donating to them again. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Like the amount of texts I get that are supposedly from Hakeem Jeffries. Oh yeah. But like, oh my God, Mitch McConnell just raised fifty million dollars to take out our most vulnerable senators. I'm like. Yeah, okay. You're really reaching out for, to me because you need my help to come yeah, at this. that's so funny. And I love how it's always like, hi, Joe Biden here. Yeah. Give me your money. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So we have all this great news. Well, not great news, okay? It's good news. I don't want to say it's great news. I see a lot of mainstream media saying these, these election results are blockbuster, 10 out of 10 for Democrats. It's like 7 out of 10, all yeah, right? It is good news for Democrats. It's good news for Democrats. Yes. It's not like... 2024 is a lock news for Democrats, right? It's not collapse of the Republican Party 
for Democrats. Well, not with the context that we have here. Right. Yeah. And that's what we got to get into here. The Democratic Party has a problem, specifically a Joe Biden yeah. problem. Yeah, his name is Biden. Yeah, <laughs> you might know him. He is not doing well against Donald Trump in a very good pollster, um, Siena New York Times poll. These guys are very, very good at what they do. And they found some interesting results. Uh, ben, you want to go through a little bit of the highlights here? Um, well, I think the the overall was Donald Trump is net 5% over Biden. Uh, I think it, he leads Biden in, in this poll. He leads Biden in every major swing state except for Wisconsin, is it? Yeah. Yes, except for Wisconsin, where Biden leads by four points. Um. Those are kind of the highlights. What uh, scares me here, what scares me so much is that this poll indicates that Biden and Trump are tied among people 18 to 29. Yeah. I, I, what's going on? That's insane. That's me. insane. We're talking about a demographic that voted for Biden like at least over 15 yeah. points. And I, I do, this is where I wonder like, are... Are the people who aren't picking up the phone, are they more likely to be Biden? Is that where there might be some skew here? That's all I can think of, but that just sounds like cope, doesn't it? It does sound like cope. And I don't I don't know. It's hard to even say that because in the past two presidential elections, the polls in both instances misjudged voter voter voting results mm -hmm. in favor of Trump. So like they underestimated Trump. Yes. Which really frightens me here. Right. Right. So they've underestimated Trump. And now we're looking at the polls and we're like, oh, maybe they're underestimating Biden. That just sounds like cope to me. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. But it, it just gets hard for me to look at this poll and see, OK, 39 percent of the Hispanic vote going to Trump, 43 to Biden, a four point different among Hispanics. Joe, uh, Donald Trump winning other race and ethnicity mm. by 13 points. That's crazy to think about. Yeah. Um, but maybe that's where we're at. Maybe that the Demo maybe the Democratic Party has a lot of work to do. Yeah. I, right. I mean, I saw some analysis about this specifically that said other polls in addition to this one have shown Biden losing ground amongst black and Hispanic voters. Mm -hmm. So that seems like something that is signal, not noise. Mm -hmm. One, this poll also asked specifically, who do you prefer on each of the issues? And Trump took almost all of them except for abortion. <laughs> and I think... The, the truth is, like some of these black and Hispanic voters, when they are polled, they say the most important issue, just like many people, is the economy. And there's still, I think, a messaging problem, yes. right? There is a perception problem that we're in a bad economy, that Trump was fantastic with the economy and that people want that back. And I, it's so hard because the, it's hard to reverse We've been in this state where we're raising rates over and over and over again. The The stock market has kind of flatlined for a while. Prices obviously are up and they're not coming down because we're not going to deflate. Right. So people are looking at the really the things that affect them on a day-to-day -day basis. And they're seeing the criticism that consistently comes in from mainstream news outlets which makes them think, okay, we're in a terrible situation, even though we're not. Right. And it, it's hard because I, I read an interesting thing where it, it was it was someone arguing. I was looking over like a Twitter chain, right? And these two people were arguing back and forth. 
and they're arguing about inflation. He's like, but prices are still so high. And they're like, and the guy's explaining, he's like, yeah, but the rate has stopped increasing. The rate isn't as bad as it was. He's like, but when are prices going to go back down? And then the guy's like, no, prices aren't going to go back down. We can't deflate. Mm -hmm. That's not how it works. And he's like, well, then inflation's still a problem. There's an issue with the definitions of words going on here. But it's a fundamental reality that people, consumers are expecting prices to come back down, which whether that's a fair a fair expectation or not is a reality that people feel and want to happen and it's not going to happen yeah. and it's going to make people sour on the economy. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't uh, it's it's How disheartening. How do you sell that? How do you sell that as Joe Biden? How do you sell look at all this progress we made but like but the damage of inflation is already done. Yeah. And how do you, how do you make people understand that it's okay that there's been inflation? Right. And that because wages have increased past inflation mm -hmm. faster than inflation then the inflation isn't really hurting you anymore inflation only matters relative to the money you're getting paid right so we're not seeing decreasing standards of living because of the inflation it's like people aren't making or failing to make this connection to the deeper underlying issue the thing that actually matters yeah because we're so stuck looking at the headline numbers and there, I think in this poll somewhere, or maybe in another one, but the the question, I think I looked at maybe something else that Pew had done about people's perceptions of the economy and what they're most concerned about is prices of fuel and prices of food. Which and are two things that a president just cannot do anything about. Every time we talk about the inflation report on this podcast, we say those are two goods that are too volatile to even take into account the inflation of and we talk about how every time it's a fuel price surge it's because of something that opec or russia has chosen to do right and you can argue like we should be oil independent well that's not something that trump got us on track to do biden sure maybe you could say he could subsidize more oil refinery processing capabilities in the u.s and i wouldn't be completely against that but there's no reason to think that someone else would do it better. And food, it's just like, that's changing constantly. There's an avian flu and then chicken prices and egg prices go up, right? It's like climate change means that you get a worse crop this year. These aren't things that presidents control. Right. Now, the only, right, exactly. And so it's frustrating. I'm sure it's frustrating the Biden campaign because they're thinking like, how the hell do we sell our achievements? Yeah. When all these things that are tied to not directly their policies are what's causing his, um, uh, his uh, approval to go down. Mm -hmm. Next question they asked was, if Donald Trump were convicted and sentenced to prison, but were still the Republican nominee, who would you vote for? And in this case, Joe Biden wins by 10. And in all of these states, swings like crazy. Arizona, Biden up five. Georgia up by 12. Michigan up by whatever, almost 10. A lot of big swings here. So... We'll talk about this in a little bit. Mm -hmm. Joe, uh, Donald Trump is not looking good legally. He's in a lot of trouble. Coming out of Georgia, he's in a lot of trouble. Mm -hmm. So this is a very possible scenario, and it gives me a little bit of comfort that, okay, if if the legal process does, it's if the legal process goes this way, Joe Biden's looking fine. But you never know. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not confident. I know, you're not Trump convinced. convictions. I know, you're no. not as convinced as I am. No, I just put a few things in here as well, because I think the context... I, I was curious, like, what do people think 
Biden has done and what do they do they care about those issues? Mm-hmm. Right. So I put I was curious about what people thought about climate change, because something that Biden, I would think, should be running on is how he's passed the most money for um, for the green energy transition of anyone in history by far. Oh, by right? far. But biggest in the world. Yes. And that should matter because according to Pew, 67% of adults say the U.S. should prioritize developing alternative energy like wind and solar. 69% of adults favor the U.S. taking steps to become carbon neutral by 2050. That's awesome to see. And specifically, two-thirds of adults say the federal government should encourage the production of wind and solar power, right? So they actually want government subsidies, which is exactly what Biden has pushed so hard to get done. Mm Mm-hmm. One thing that I do think is interesting is there are 43% of people who answer that same thing that are that want government subsidies to fund the use of electric vehicles. I think it's interesting how big of a drop-off there is between these two because I recently saw a video about how electric vehicles are not necessarily the best uh, technology for fighting climate change yeah because of the amount of energy it takes to make them mm-hmm. right and the like it takes so much fossil fuels to mine and refine all of the materials that we need to actually put into these batteries um and i wonder if that's where these uh where these views are coming from but still it's so many more people who are, think the government should encourage the use of electric vehicles than should discourage it yeah yeah, I think like one of the big hurdles for electric vehicles has to be the price point. Mm-hmm. I think once consumers start seeing the price point drop off, especially over the next like seven years, yeah, they're going to feel totally different on that issue. I think so too. Yeah. Um, and so I then I just was looking into what people thought about the economy and it's, it's just they think it's abysmal. They're so pessimistic about the economy. Um, and I... Uh, I don't know. I hope I hope other outlets do a better job of communicating that that isn't really the case. Yeah, I think it's also going to take time for I think it's going to take some time for people to feel that their wages have kept up with inflation. Mm. I think that takes more time. Do you know what I mean? Do you do you think they do feel it? I think they have to feel it. Okay, but I do think we have a big issue with our views of the economy about how partisan it's become. Mm. Uh, 2017. Right when Obama leaves office, 46% of Democrats say the economy's good. 18% of Republicans say the economy's good. Trump's in office one year, and that number flip-flops pretty much. Mm-hmm. And it's just nuts. Like, that's really nuts. Yeah. Or like, we look at the COVID pandemic. Uh, the Republicans pretty much think we're out of the recession by 2021. Only 19% think their economy is good by then. And, you know, we're now at a situation where Republicans think the economy is worse now than it was in the height of COVID. Well, see, to me, this it just follows so closely who is the president. Right, exactly. Right? And so what I think is it's, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but it's what is Fox News saying? That's what the red line follows. <laughs> yes. What is MSNBC saying? That's what the blue line follows. I think it might be that. Right? I think it just might be that simple. Yeah. I think it's all a perception game. Yeah. I think people don't actually, I, I, I analyzing the economy is hard right? Yes. So doing it, obviously everyone doing it themselves is not possible. No. So no. I totally understand where this is. I see where this is coming from. I see it's just the media narrative that's doing this. Yes. 
I agree. And I think it's just, obviously everyone just needs to listen to us because we know what's going on. Yeah, we are way smarter than everybody else. And that's why we alone can fix it. As <laughs> as Donald Trump once said, I alone can fix this. <laughs> yes. So watch us and give us all your money. Yes. Um, Want to move on? Yeah, let's move on. Okay, so this is, this is a big piece of news in the fight for the transition to a green energy environment. Um, there was big news last week that Orsted, the Danish energy firm, has decided to cancel two offshore wind farms off of New Jersey. Um, so this is kind of a shock because New Jersey had passed a law letting offshore wind developers keep tax credits that were intended to offset costs for ratepayers. So these tax credits were supposed to come on the consumer side and the New Jersey government specifically passed something to push them to the producer side wow. just so they could keep these projects happening, right? Mm-hmm. So total shock that this went down. Um, Orsted cited delays in securing the vessel that it needed to build them. So I think this is something that we talked about a while back when we did our deep dive on renewable energy sources. The types of ships that are needed to build offshore wind farms are extremely limited oh yeah extremely limited and right now right that's it's kind of one of the bottlenecks as the transition worldwide particularly in the west has been ramping up um so orsted also has plans to build offshore wind in new york and they said the reason that they're sticking with those new york plans is because they've already procured the vessel for it um this comes when the we talked a few weeks back about a current event in New York where uh, a, an alliance, basically a professional organization of wind and solar developers said that they need to renegotiate their contracts to be able to sell energy at higher rates to um, consumers because financing issues and higher interest rates meant that the projects were going to cost more. We never gave you guys an update on that, but the governor of New York came out and said that they weren't going to let that happen, that the companies had bid to sell the energy at specific rates up front, and they needed to hold to that. But despite that, despite needing to sell at the lower prices, Orsted still is maintaining its presence in New York rather than New Jersey. So the Jersey governor was furious. He released a statement that's like, it's outrageous that they're pulling out on their commitment to New Jersey. Um, and he said, we're absolutely still moving forward with our plans to transition to the green economy. Uh, but we're going to try to claw back $300 million from Orsted for their cancellation. It's something that we talked about with the Inflation Reduction Act that the Biden administration put in provisions that companies could not just keep the money that the government gave them to build their green energy projects if they withdrew. And this is a really big deal because historically, this has been a problem with industrial policy, right? Companies will take the money that the government offers them and then they'll just walk away and they don't, there's no accountability. So hopefully Governor Murphy can get this money back. Um, It just sucks because this, this is going to be a delay. I'm hoping it doesn't delay it by too many years. These are supposed to be pretty massive projects mm-hmm. providing a lot of energy. Um, and the wild thing is for Orsted, they 
they said that they would be writing off $5.6 billion worth of assets by withdrawing from these projects and they're doing it anyways wow it's insane that is insane yeah that's insane and it's going to make it so much harder to now re-up find a new company to do this Mm -hmm. because now these new companies i don't know if you said this part yet but yeah they have to recontract Mm -hmm. at a such higher interest rate than what was already contracted on right yeah so this this was probably contract at a two percent interest rate now interest rates are 5.5 percent yeah that's going to be that's going to make it so much harder to get the initial investment and that five that 300 million dollars isn't going to go as far as it could have yes absolutely and and where is is this other company that comes in and takes over the project are they going to be able to find the vessel to build it just Mm -hmm. as fast why no probably not right it'll probably be just as hard so it's it's bad news it's an unfortunate setback it's an example of how like generally this current economic environment with high interest rates is really making it hard to transition to do the green transition right and we knew this we knew this going in that Mm -hmm. raising interest rates was going to make it harder for big big investments like this yeah it's gonna make it difficult and um i guess it hurts i guess one thing that i guess is uh, this might be a half-baked opinion here but that's what the show's all about (laughs) half-baked opinions um money from the government might be way cheaper than money from a bank in this environment, right? Mm -hmm. Because money from the government doesn't have the interest rate issues that taking money from the bank will have Mm -hmm. or a loan from the bank will have. So maybe companies are more incentivized to look to the government for capital, and maybe that would drive their new business directions in this new high interest rate environment. I can, I see what you're saying. Yeah, so like right? they're they're more incentivized to say take up the IRA tax credits. Right. The the problem is what was really exciting about the IRA up front is because of is all of the private investment that it spurred. Yeah. Right. It's because they know that the government money they get is essentially going to make these discounted projects, but still private investment is driving eighty percent of the financing. Yeah. So it's. It's hard. It's all just, it's all a math problem and the interest rates really make it a more difficult one. Yeah. We really missed our shot in that low rate environment of the 2010s. Yeah. You know, we totally missed our shot. Yeah. Um, under the Obama administration and during the Trump administration, there should have been much more infrastructure investment then. Totally. Because we're just going to get less bang for our buck nowadays. I must say, okay, an idea that just came to my mind is this. Is this like a paradoxical economy thing? Is it possible? I, of course, the the argument that Republicans make is that these all of these subsidies, putting all this money into the economy, is what created inflation. That's what they say. I don't agree with that. But you okay. don't agree with that? Okay. I don't. I don't agree that it made inflation that much worse. I I, I think the analysis I've said is it, it impacted 03 percent of inflation. Okay. But yeah. Okay. Finish well, I mean, if, if that's the case, it's not a big deal. But if that were true, then if government subsidies force inflation higher, which then force interest rates higher, which means that companies can't actually do the mm-hmm. development that the subsidies are initially designed for, mm-hmm. you should never give subsidies. Right, right. It's just like this awful cyclical cycle. Yeah. My, my whole thing is government spending is really, really bad for inflation unless it spurs growth alongside of it. Okay. Because then if you're making more goods, 
then you're not going to have more money chasing after fewer goods. Yes. So as long as your spending is spurring growth, mm-hmm. then you're fine. Okay. Um, then there's arguments to say, well, wait a second. Uh, consumption spurs growth. So how do you even define? It's very, that's a whole other fucking conversation. This is a short one, but I want to give a little bit insight into what the Biden administration is doing in terms of rail. So I'm a, I love trains. I want more trains everywhere. We talk about how electric vehicles isn't the future of a green transportation system. Well, rail is. Mm-hmm. Um, the federal government will pump $16 billion into proving the nation's busiest rail line. This is specifically talking about the Northeast Amtrak corridor, the one that runs from D.C. to Boston. Uh, take that all the time. So thank you for upgrading it. I appreciate it. Um, the main thing that's getting upgraded here is the Gateway Hudson River Tunnel. Um, this is what connects New Jersey to Manhattan. The Amtrak CEO has said that if this tunnel were to fail, it would cause an absolute meltdown. And this tunnel is over a century old. It has taken damage from Superstorm Sandy that has still not been fixed a decade later. Wow. And now there is corroding after the flooding from that Superstorm Sandy. So this really needs to be fixed. ASAP. Um, So I'm really glad funding is going to this. This $16 billion, most of it comes from the bipartisan infrastructure agreement. So... Andy Bashir, you know, get on get on your horn here. There's no such thing as a Democrat tunnel or a Republican tunnel, right? Yeah. Um, that's what he should be saying at things like this. Um, Pete Buttigieg has a quote here. Americans need and deserve world-class rail, which is the president's vision. But for decades now, we have underinvested as a country in passenger rail in the United States. And we absolutely have. We are getting swamped on our passenger rail system compared to what they have in Europe. Um, the trip from Madrid to Barcelona is about the same place from New York to Boston, it costs half as much and it's twice as fast. Oh, that's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking, dude. Yeah. And look, there's a lot of reasons why. One of the main reasons why the Northeast Corridor is so slow is because of um, rich people in Connecticut that don't want the Amtrak line too close to their property. So it's impossible for them to straighten out. Like if you've ever taken the Amtrak over Connecticut, it goes like this. It's so bad. It's just gross, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it's also really expensive to build rail in the United States as compared to the other countries. Do you know why that is? I, I, I don't know enough hmm. as to say why okay. it is. I just know it is. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, the ability to move is so important to the economy. Mm-hmm. So I think this is fantastic. And I'm constantly frustrated by how much better other countries are at trains than us. Um, so hearing some good news on this is nice. I know. I just want Amtrak to, I I wish Amtrak had the military budget for just two years. Like the whole world could just calm down and the United States can just put $800 billion a year into Amtrak, baby. Oh, God. Oh, that would be fantastic. What a dream. Yeah. Maybe the world will deglobalize enough that we don't have to worry about (laughs) other countries as much. Yeah. yeah, And then we can do that. Then we could do that. Yeah. Okay. But not yet. Not yet. Not yet, because we have a terrible global crisis that is only getting worse and worse as the days go on. Yeah. And more children die every 15 minutes. A child Uh, dies in Gaza. uh, All right. So we're going to talk about Israel-Palestine. I I just have a couple things about Israel-Palestine that have happened over the week hmm. that I just want to talk about and shoot out. Sure. Um, Obama threw his hat in the ring. Obama was on Pod Save America, our number one competitor. <laughs> um, yeah, we're their number one competitor. Yeah, we're their number one competitor. Yeah. Um, and he said some things that I that are obviously true, but I think are very Obama-esque. Oh, yeah. Um, he says, 
what Hamas did was horrific, and there's no justification for it. And what is also true is that the occupation and what's happening to Palestinians is unbearable. Um, a true statement, but mm-hmm. it's very Obama-esque to very, very succinctly and cleanly and non-controversially outline the problem in a way that absolutely nobody could disagree with yep. and then propose basically no solution except to get along. Yep. Exactly. That's the Obama playbook, man. Absolutely. Say absolutely nothing but sound like the nicest guy in the room. Yeah, yeah. Sound like the most charismatic guy around and help nobody. Mm-hmm. And that's what it is. And it's annoying that this guy was president for eight years. Mm-hmm. And so it's so frustrating to me. Maybe this is something I need to get over and I just have to learn to live with. But it's so frustrating to me to see a former president talk about so many things that are wrong when he was literally the president and didn't do the things that he's saying others should do. Yes. I think it's almost easier for him because the narrative about his presidency is so solidly, I was blocked on everything. Yeah. Like everybody knows that. I believe it to be true. Of course it is. It is true. But it's still frustrating. But foreign policy is the one area where the president has all the authority. You're pretty much unilaterally. And so if you wanted to fix some Israeli-Palestine stuff, why didn't you do something after the 2008 invasion of Gaza Mm. and November 4th? Why didn't you do something after the 2014? You did something after the 2014 war, but it wasn't enough, obviously. Mm. You know, you you didn't sit down and have this conversation that you want to have so bad then. Yeah. So it's just annoying to hear Obama say that, to be honest. It just is. Yeah. You know, I'm glad he's saying that because it's the right thing to say. I just wish he would have said it a decade ago. You know? Yeah. I mean, I guess I don't, I don't, I just, I don't even care because it doesn't move the needle for anyone. No, because no Republican, no Israel supporter gives a shit. No. This doesn't change their idea that they don't really care what's happening to the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't do anything to move anyone in the middle towards a more solid view like in favor of the palestinians or what the u.s should do to try to influence israel or anything like that well because he doesn't even say what the u.s should do no his only his only prescription is to get in the room and start talking yeah that's like not like we're there like we're we're, we're doing it yeah like that's kind of what's been happening over the last 75 years man that is the most obvious like lowest common denominator action that anyone could take or so, think to take. And it's just so frustrating because, yes, he's a charismatic guy and all that, and he definitely spoke well. But you read stuff like that, and he just says nothing very well. Yeah. You know what I mean? He has the best ability to say absolutely nothing while saying a lot of words. Yep. Ugh. All right. Next. Iran. Uh, Iran. Iran. There you go. I'm learning, guys. Yep. I'm learning. One Slowly of our, but surely. One of our first videos, I said Iran, and... Obviously, it was a great video, but all the comments were just making fun of me for how I pronounced Iran. Yeah, and now I got to correct you every time I hear it. And it saved me later on. Yeah. So Iran has threatened to attack the United States. Um, An Iranian official has issued a direct threat to the U.S. They've said Iran... Fuck. (laughs) Instantly. You're right back. All right. Oh, God. Directed the U.S. Iran cannot just watch the situation as a bystander. If the scope of war expands, heavy losses will be inflicted on the United States. That is such a bold statement to come from an Iranian official. That's so blustery and so 
unbelievable. Unbelievable. Like like liter no, literally unbelievable. <laughs> like that that's not going to happen. No, obviously they're yeah. not going to attack mainland United States. No. But they can attack US troops positioned in the region. And that's okay. what has been happening. Okay. Over the last few days. I see. So America has some forces stationed in Iraq and Syria. I'm not even going to pretend I know how many. I'm I I don't know, but they have them there. Mm-hmm. Um I tried to do some research on it, but I think it's kind of par for the course that they don't really want you to know how many are in there. Yeah. Obviously. So there have been 38 attacks linked to Iranian-backed groups since October 7th. Wow. So that's a little more than one a day. Yeah. Right? Um, the U.S. forces um, are present on... So why are the U.S. forces even there? The U.S. forces are present on the ground specifically to defeat ISIS. We know we don't talk about ISIS anymore, but there is still an ISIS resurgent group that if the United States wasn't present, would very quickly take over some villages. Yeah, sounds so, like an Afghanistan situation. It is an Afghanistan situation. We're stuck there forever. It's just, it's going to be how it is, unfortunately. Yeah. I don't think there's, the the Iraqian security forces will never have the capacity to fight back against ISIS, um, and neither will Assad, as he's still clamoring and having fights um, internally with the Syrian government there, mm. right? Well, he is the Syrian government, but you know what I mean? He's still... Yeah, there's still civil war. Yeah, there's still civil war going on there. So yeah. he doesn't have the real capacity. Mm-hmm. So they're there to help Iraq battle the remnants of the Islamic State and handle any more resurgencies that come out. Um, other geopolitical commentators that do have some respect suggest that these troops are present only to deter Iran, that the threat of an ISIS resurgence is overblown, and that the U.S. only has soldiers there to deter Iran from making headway into the um, into Iraq and Syria. Yeah, I think I could buy that. I think it's both because yeah. I think Iran is is aligned with ISIS to some extent, like mm. it is with Hamas and kind Hezbollah. Of. They're different sects of Islam. Yes, they're different sects, but so is so is Hamas. Yes, like they're they're different sects, but the bigger issue at hand is countering western influence true specifically the u.s and israel so well i i want to i want i got to challenge you a little bit because iran did do a lot to fight isis in the heyday okay they did um remember that general trump killed Soleimani? do you remember that story Soleimani fought a lot of isis okay yeah he killed a lot of isis guys okay he did a lot of work with that but i do think now these resurgence are iran is taking advantage of their uh what's the word i'm looking for it's they just have like no hope right mm. and so iran is kind of taking advantage of that okay yeah well my my understanding is general like the the arab population and the arab countries in the middle east generally are they're not fans specifically of hamas because they are different sects oh yeah but the, it's it's kind of they've decided the devil they know the devil they're a little bit closer to, a little bit more ideologically aligned with, mm-hmm. and which is less powerful. Yeah. And that's the biggest thing. Yeah, that's the biggest thing. Yeah. So the United States has suffered 38 related attacks to Iranian-backed groups, and Tehran is not specifically involved in the planning of these attacks. There's no evidence to say, oh, Tehran told them to bomb U.S. in this area at this time. Mm. That doesn't appear to be the case. But it does seem to say that, it does seem to appear that Iran is encouraging them. Okay. Giving them money, giving okay. them weapons. Sure. And so in these 38 attacks, 40 minor injuries have occurred, and 10 U.S. soldiers have traumatic brain injury um, from it. Okay. Um, so how long can that go on without a U.S. retaliation is the question. Uh, probably a while. I think 
the U.S. and the Biden administration are very invested in preventing the expansion of this conflict. No, I agree with that. But I do think it's a bad look for 38 more attacks to happen next month and for the United States not to bomb the hell out of these groups that are stationed in Iraq with the Iran- Iranian backing. Uh, maybe that's the hawk in me. No, I don't know. I, I, I get that. I'm. It's hard because now I feel like I'm in the weak position of not liking either. Right, right, the, right. Like, like uh, I don't... You feel like you need to attack to retaliate because otherwise the attacks will keep happening. But also... If you attack to retaliate, then the attacks from the other side will just grow. Yes. So it's right. not like it's solving the problem. Yes. But it also just feels wrong to not do anything. Yeah. It's a really complicated situation. I definitely agree. I don't know how much popular support these Iranian-backed groups have in these Shi- Shia areas of Iraq. Mm. I don't know how much public support they have. Um, I think it's a little different with Hamas. And like Taliban in Afghanistan, because they did share an okay amount of popular support. Okay. Right? So maybe there's a little bit of a difference in that regard. But I don't know the right answer. But I do think it's not good that U.S. troops are getting bombed by Iranian troops. And the Biden administration is stuck between a rock and a hard place because they don't want to escalate escalate too much because yeah. escalation could mean a big war. Yeah. Um, and we, do, we have two t- carrier groups in the Red Sea and one in the Mediterranean Sea, mm-hmm. were stationed there pretty hardcore. Yeah. And I think that has done a lot to deter further expansion of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict into really? other Arab countries. Oh, yeah. I think it has. I think it kind of deterred, and I'm not saying Jordan had a lot of capacity for war, but I think it deterred Assad from Syria from getting interested in expansion. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just thought Assad was too occupied. He might have been. military conflict. And the thing is, Yemen declared war on israel yes right so i'm i'm not sure i i I do just worry more about escalation i worry that them being there means that it's it's that much easier for a spark to kind of cause a bigger explosion no i know what you mean i know what you mean i do i am in favor of sending the care groups i i think it was the right decision okay um if it does escalate i'll eat my words but we'll see okay um but now i want to talk about something the responses on this show that we've been getting a little bit, because I think it's interesting. Okay. We've posted a lot of videos on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and I think our coverage has been very balanced. Um, ben and I have a lot of sympathy for the Palestinian side of the conflict. There's no doubt about it. Um, I don't want to speak for you, but I mean, I think you're in favor of a two-state solution yeah. generally, right? I, I mean, and I am in favor of a two-state solution. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what Israel has done in the West Bank and in Gaza is wrong, and the blockade of Gaza is wrong. Yep. The settler occup- the settler movements into West into the West Bank are wrong. Mm-hmm. The retaliation s- strategy of Israel just bombing the hell out of Gaza City is wrong. Yeah, those things are wrong, but it doesn't mean we have to blindly accept the every move that the Palestinians make. And say that all of these moves were the right moves. Killing 1,400 civilians on October 7th was extremely wrong. Mm-hmm. And we get a lot of hate when we make videos and when we talk about Hamas and how bad Hamas is. And we got a lot of Palestinians in our comments or Palestinian supporters in our comment section saying that we're mischaracterizing the issue. Watch our full video. 
we most certainly are not mischaracterizing the issue. No. It's just not as black and white as you think it is from watching your TikTok feed. Yeah. I I read a Times article today that I think provides some really good context for this where they got in touch with some of the leaders of Hamas and got context from the horse's mouths of why this attack, why now? And they specifically cited events like the the rise of attacks in the West Bank, the Israeli military invasion and attack on the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. Yeah. Um, yeah. And how they noticed that the basically the Israeli apartheid of Palestinian people was becoming was advancing further and further that Palestinians were becoming kind of more okay with it just because it was the way of life and that the Palestinian authority was always governing under the Israeli authorities but was okay with that and was negotiating with them and ready to work with them and Hamas basically they were driven to do this attack because they were worried that the Palestinian cause was fading, right? And they said they needed military action to galvanize it and to make it more of an issue at the forefront of people's minds. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying this to give credibility to the Hamas attack. Instead, I'm saying Israel absolutely had a role to play because of their mistreatment of Palestinians and... The response by Hamas was absolutely unjustified because even with that treatment of Palestinians, the fact that Hamas was looking for violence, they were looking for a change to the situation, for something to, quote unquote, wake people up, right, and have them more alert and ready to fight. How disgusting is it that they are willing to pay the price of 10,000 civilians just to change how people feel about the situation. Yeah. That's horrific. And that's exactly what they said to reporters. They wanted more of their citizens to die. Yes. So that more of them would want to fight Israel. Yes. That is there there is there isn't a good guy and we've said this for each of the past two episodes that we talked about this. Israel is not the good guy. Hamas is not the good guy. There is blame to go around to both sides in this conflict. And I'm sorry if you're looking for someone to be more one or the other on it. That's just not how it is. And yeah, that's not how we're going to be. We're no. not going to lie to you. No. And it's, yeah, it's, so I think it's, again, it's not what you can see in a TikTok. It's not something that can really be explained and completely summed up within 30 or 60 seconds, or at least not in a way that you can com unilaterally decide this is all Hamas's fault yeah. or this is all Israel's fault. Yeah. You can learn bits and pieces of the story from re from watching TikToks mm -hmm. and stuff. That's fine, but you cannot fit in the entirety of the conflict in that into 30 seconds and 60 seconds. I'm sorry, you can't. No. It, which is why we talked about it for like an hour yeah. on our last episode or two episodes ago. Yeah. So now I want to talk about something that's been happening a lot more recently. Israel is expanding into the West Bank very fast after October 7th. They are arming their settlers, and it's causing a lot of Palestinians in the West Bank to suffer. Keep in mind, the attack from October 7th occurred from Hamas that is only stationed in Gaza, 
that is not touching the West Bank, okay? Please mm -hmm. keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. The people of the West Bank had nothing to do with October 7th. So now I'm going to tell a little story about Bilal Muhammad Saleh. He was a, Palest he was a Palestinian sidewalk vendor um, of sage and thyme. He went out with his family to pick some olives. Four armed Jewish settlers showed up, uh, witnesses said. They started yelling, and the olive pickers stopped what they were doing and began to run. Two gunshots rang out, and in an instant, Mr. Chalet, who was known for his love of fresh leaves and being a fun dad, was face down in the olive grove, dead. He was killed by these Jewish settlers. And this is not uncommon. Since October 7th, settler violence has displaced nearly 1,000 Palestinians, including entire herding communities. Um, there have been 130 Palestinians killed since October 7th, uh, per the United Nations, by the Israeli military and Israeli armed uh, settlers. And this is what this is just going to encourage so much more violence and so much more terrorism. Yeah. It's fucking disgusting. Um, and th this is not solving anything. This is the type of thing that makes me wonder how Israeli government really felt about the attack. Yeah. This is the type of thing that's like, could they have known it was coming? We talked about how Israeli intelligence is absolutely top of the line. And it's crazy that they didn't know about an attack that killed 1,400 Israelis. I know. I'm not so, going to go into conspiracy. I'm not going to—I don't want to do that. I suppose not. But it, it's like—I don't know. that It does seem like they, they enabled this. They've been enabling it for a long time, and we know that Israel is motivated to have the entirety of the, the territory of the West Bank and Jerusalem to themselves. So— I don't know. It, no, it yeah, is I conspiracy, mean, and there's no, there is no evidence that there are direct ties here, and that this is a, a government plot. But it does all align. Yeah. Um, I, I'm doing a weird thing right now. I'm like, I'm like reading a lot of the Bible here, and in Genesis, God promises the Israelites the land from the Egyptian Sea to the Euphrates, mm -hmm. and He promises this land to them. And so there is a hardcore religious element to the settlers who go on the front lines into the West Bank, who truly believe that God promised us this land all the way to the Jordan River, and they need to create greater Israel and conquer and hold the land of Canaan as God promised them. That, that is a massive element to this. And the ones who are believing that so intensely are the ones who are settling in the West Bank, picking up a gun given to the Israelis by the United States, mm -hmm. and then shooting an olive picker and a sidewalk vendor um, in the middle of the West Bank. Yeah. Um, it's insane. And obviously, Palestinian attacks are rising in the West Bank as well. There have been 23 Israeli civilians who have died. Um, extremist settlers, Zionists, into the West Bank have been attacking Palestinian homes, businesses, blowing up their generators and solar panels, burning down their tents of uh, semi-nomadic herders, and even shooting people. These semi-nomadic herders are like, centuries old family lines right mm. like that's what we're talking about here like centuries old family family lineages of nomadic tribes people who are doing their thing herding their sheep or whatever they do i don't know um and then just getting shot at with a m4 i mean it's just nuts yeah it's, it's nuts. it's tragic it's nuts um uh uh the israelis have been also leaving leaflets around the West Bank, trying to warn 
trying to warn or threaten um, Palestinian people there. So this is what an Israeli flyer was left on a call on a bunch of Palestinian cars. A great catastrophe will descend upon your head soon. We will destroy every enemy and expel you forcibly from our holy land that God has written for us. Wherever you are, carry your loads immediately and leave to where you came from. We are coming for you. (laughs) This is insanity. So (laughs) all the people who are blindly supporting Israel, the Israeli state funds these people. The Israeli state arms these people. The government uh, spews rhetoric that encourages them. Absolutely encourages them. Absolutely encourages The IDF specifically recruits settlers to join militia organizations. With the explicit goal of erasing all of Gaza from the face of the earth. Oh, this is what I wanted to say. This is perfect. So, um, Galit Distel Adabiran, she is a member of the Israeli Knesset in Benjamin Netanyahu's party. Um, This is what she said on Twitter uh, recently. Erasing all of Gaza from the face of the earth. That the Gazan monsters will fly to the southern fence and try to enter Egyptian territory or they will die. That is that not the most genocidal That's rhetoric you've ever heard? Saying what's supposedly the quiet part out loud. It's just what they they literally want the entirety of the Gazan population to die. That's yeah. what she specifically says. It's so Where is the where's the fucking humanity here? Yeah, it's it's non-existent, and I mean the one thing I, I will say as far as because I, it is just so hard to talk about this when we're trying on this show to talk about problems and talk about how we can fix them, mm-hmm. right? And so that brings me to there has been a lot of reporting on how the Biden administration and Anthony Blinken have been pushing hard, hard. for pauses in the violence to get humanitarian aid into Gaza and to allow more people to get out. But Israel keeps pushing back and Netanyahu keeps tweeting and making public statements that a ceasefire is equivalent to surrender to Hamas, that they can't stop their fighting unless there's the, unless Israeli hostages are released. No matter what the U.S. does or says, it's not slowing them down at all. Mm-hmm. And so I, uh, I don't know. That's... When we first learned about this conflict, like that, that's what felt like the clearest potential yeah. solution, right? Is something that we could impose on Israel because we have some influence with them, but it's not doing anything. It's not doing anything. Israel has gone full in on the invasion of Gaza. They have split Gaza City from the southern part officially. Yeah. They have made their way to the sea, and they're currently closing in on Gaza City. They've broken through a lot of the suburbs, and now the fighting is about to get extremely intense. Mm-hmm. We're talking about areas that have a higher population density than the most urban parts of Paris and London. Yeah. That's how dense this fighting is going to be. Mm-hmm. The, the civilian casualties are going to be insane and the idf casualties are going to be insane too yeah it's going to be really hard for israel to do this invasion this is not going to be easy um but now let's go back to american politics um republicans have a response to this israeli-palestinian conflict what is their brilliant response well uh representative ryan zink from montana wants to ban all palestinians from coming to the country um anyone who has a palestinian passport um will be barred from entering and he also wants to expel all those palestinians who are currently here abhorrent monstrous monstrous um disgusting i don't 
I, I wish I had more words. He wouldn't allow this bill would would block any Palestinian from claiming refugee status or asylum status. It is so obvious that Hamas is separate from Palestinians. It's not even close. Like the 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 how stupid or purposely ignorant you have to be to pretend that these are all associated with each other and that Palestinians are necessarily going to be terrorists in the U.S. rather than refugees who are trying to escape some of the worst living conditions on Earth. The worst in the planet. It's it's almost purely evil. It's it's just disgusting. And this is coming from the party who goes on the floor and then they, they, they compare um, civilian casualties in Gaza as uh, Nazi civilian casualties during World War II. It's like... How fucking evil are you? Yeah. How fucking evil are you? How little do you care about the sanctity of human life? Yeah, well, the, the point is it doesn't... Nazi civilian casualties aren't okay either. Right. That's the hard truth, right? Yeah. Um, and the, if it's just not the case that Israel is conducting their bombings in a way that are, is within the rules of war. Civilian casualties are actually allowed per the Geneva Convention, per the United Nations, if you are bombing military, militarily important infrastructure. That's that's the rule, okay? Well, they're not doing that. They're bombing literal refugee camps. They're, they bombed a refugee camp. They literally bombed hospitals, okay? Yeah. I don't know about the one that was all in the news and all that. That's not what I'm talking about. They have bombed hospitals outside of that mm -hmm. and threatened to bomb hospitals outside of that, which is, again, a war crime. The Palestinian refugee community is the largest refugee community out of any nation in the world. There are 5.9 million Palestinian refugees that live across the Middle East. Only 2,000 Palestinians have resettled in America. So this guy, Ryan Zink, looks at the situation and he goes, what can I do to help? I can target the 2,000 Palestinian refugees that live in the United States, send the Gestapo on them, and boot them out of the country back to the worst place in the world. That's his solution. Yeah, That's what he wants to do. Um, President Trump has gone out. <laughs> on Monday, he said if he was reelected, he would reinstate and expand the travel ban on people from predominantly Muslim countries. This isn't even Palestinians now. This doesn't, his, the travel ban yeah. that he passed doesn't even include the West Bank and Palestine on the list here. It's just covering most of the Middle East. Just covering most of the Middle East. Suspend refugee resettlements completely and aggressively deport those who are characterized as having jihadist sympathies. This is extremely Naziistic. It's so Naziistic, dude. It's rhetoric. insane. Yeah, it is insane. It's absolutely insane. Like this is, it, it's, and it's so obvious. It's so bald faced, right? It's like, obviously, yeah, you start with one group and then you expand. Mm -hmm. <sighs> yeah, it didn't take very long. They went from Palestinians to every single Muslim community. Right? Yeah. It took, took literally a day. Yeah. So it's just nuts to me. And then on the backdrop of this, we have one Palestinian representative in the House of Representatives. We have Rashida Tlaib from Michigan. Mm. Rashida Tlaib has said things to me that I don't agree with. Uh, said things to me. She has said things that I don't agree with. Um, she has said that Joe Biden is explicitly supporting a genocide. I don't agree with that rhetoric. I don't agree with that. Mm. Um, she also uses the slogan from the river to the sea. I don't agree with that slogan. But if you're really sitting here arguing about a slogan when a child dies every 15 minutes, you got to get your fucking priorities straight, to be honest. Um, you can criticize the slogan, but if that actually affects how you view the conflict, you got to get over yourself. There's bigger things going on. Mm -hmm. um, but Rashida Tlaib has been censured 
um, because of her criticism of Israel by all Republicans and 22 Democrats. She has been censured um, for uh, voicing her disdain for the Israeli occupation and attacks on the Palestinian people uh, following the uh, October 7th attack. So that's that. Yeah. Listen, I have my problems with Rashida Tlaib, but she didn't deserve to be censured. That's for damn sure. No, not for this. No, not for that. Not for this. Not for that. It's nuts. It's nuts. Um, okay. To Trump? To Trump, which is, I guess, you know, a, a much lighter thing to talk about, right? Yeah, it's, it's kind of silly. It's, it's silly. could... I don't know. It's could silly. Matter could be important. I mean, if he goes to jail, we we Biden wins by ten, right? Yeah, right. Apparently. So I guess it's important. Yeah. Um, uh, Trump's circle has collapsed on him. Um, it's really funny to see every people who we kind of held dear, uh, held dear. He hold uh, that's a that's the wrong way to put it. All these people who worked for him, um, are turning on him in the Georgia Fulton County case for um election subversion and uh uh all that stuff with the fake elector scandal. Sidney Powell has pleaded guilty and will be working with the prosecution. Excuse me. They will be work. Sidney Powell will be working with the prosecution in Georgia's election suburban racketeering case. In addition, Mark Meadows has been given immunity and has said that he warned Trump about what he was doing. Mm-hmm. So this means Sidney Powell, Mark Meadows against Trump and the prosecution. Yeah. Another one of his lawyers. Jenna Ellis. Jenna Ellis has pleaded guilty and will also be cooperating with the prosecution. Another one of his lawyers is Kenneth Chesborough, who has also pleaded guilty and is also cooperating. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So uh, this is insane to me. Four or three lawyers and one chief of staff against him working with the cooper- uh, working with the prosecution. Yeah. Um, a little interesting note here about Mark Meadows, which I find really funny. Um, his book publisher is actually suing him because in his book, Mark Meadows wrote that Donald Trump was deprived of re-election uh, to the to the White House in 2020 by ballot fraud, and that led to the election of President Joe Biden. That is funny. That's hilarious that his book publisher is now suing him because yeah. he lied like that. Because in deposition, Mark Meadows has now admitted that that wasn't true. Yeah, he has now yeah. said that that is not the case, and he even told Donald Trump at the time that that was not the case, and that did not happen. Yeah. Um, now, it is important to say that the lawyers who pled in the Georgia case didn't plead to the entire main conspiracy count. Mm-hmm. Um, that still is yet to be seen. Yeah. But they're working with the prosecution in a lot of ways. So not looking good for Trump boy. Not no. looking good for him. Um, in addition to... Jesus Christ. What's going on over here? Why am I yawning <laughs> so much? Oh, my God. Okay. It's dark now. It's dark now. Yeah. All right. Hold on. I'll finish this off quick, and then we'll go to the UAW, which is what I really want to talk about. Yeah. Um, so there's another question here. Is Donald Trump even allowed to run for office? Um, constitutional scholars are kind of up in the air about this. A lot of people interpret the 14th Amendment as saying that Donald Trump is totally barred from running for office because the 14th Amendment stops people from running for public office if they they have engaged in insurrection or rebellion. Um, so now lawsuits are coming up where this is happening, and this question is getting asked. One is in Colorado. Denver District Judge Sarah Wallace, appointed to the bench by Colorado sitting Democratic governor, will hear closing arguments on November 15th and then rule shortly after if he can even be on the ballot in the state of Colorado. And I suspect if that happens in Colorado, it's going to expand. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's already also in litigation it's, right now in Minnesota. It's in another state. I think it's also in Minnesota. Minnesota. 
Okay, okay. Yes, but no matter what happens here, whether this happens in Colorado, whether this happens in Minnesota or the other state, I, don't, I, don't, I wish I knew it, um, this is going to get appealed up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court is going to have to make the decision of whether or not Donald Trump can run for office. And that's going to be really interesting. It is Minnesota? Yeah, it is Minnesota, but I'm seeing an update 46 minutes ago, which is after we started recording, that says they blocked the bid to wow. remove Trump. Okay, there it is. Wow. Yeah, that's very crazy. interesting. Real time. I wonder what the um, what the rationale is here. Okay, so if this happened, then I doubt that the Colorado one will go through too. Mm-hmm. I doubt that. Yeah, there's no state statute that prohibits a major political party from placing on the presidential nomination primary ballot or sending delegates to the national convention supporting a candidate who is ineligible to hold office. Oh, okay. So they're saying that the state can place a presidential nominee on the ballot even if they're ineligible to hold office. But that doesn't mean if he wins, he's legally allowed to enter. Correct, but I'm not sure Minnesota could decide that. Yes. Right? But I I mean... Maybe it won't happen in Colorado. Okay, so there's one in Michigan as well. Okay. The thing is, the state laws are different. Right. So I'm not completely different. sure that it, it would that it won't happen in Mich- or in Colorado or Michigan because mm. of this. Um, I think this is crazy because it's not crazy because it's not completely outlandish. Oh no! Because it I seems wish this possible. Would happen. We talk all the time how we admire the German Constitution for being self-defending mm-hmm. and like have institutions inside of the Constitution that directly combat people who try to subvert or destroy the democratic constitution Mm -hmm. we need more of that and that's why i think this should happen yeah i agree with that right yeah so i i mean we'll see seven days they're supposed to have the closing arguments one week from now but minnesota's language is interesting they didn't totally disagree with the fact that donald trump is barred from office that's not what they said they only said that they couldn't stop him from getting on the ballot not that they can't stop him from taking office correct yeah and I mean, in Colorado, there have been a series of pre-trial victories that have defied expectations that like mm-hmm. the case is more legitimate than people thought. Yeah. Like they, tr- Trump made several motions to throw out the case. They didn't go through. So this case is happening, um, mm. which is wild. That's so interesting. That's yeah. so interesting. Well, we'll have an update for the next episode then. Yeah. That'll be around time. That's Definitely. nuts. Um, okay. Now, yes. I want to talk about what the UAW is affecting right now yeah is there any chance i just want to say real quick yeah. is there any chance we want to save this so little preview little oh, sneak peek yeah we're about to do a deep dive on the history of the uaw oh. leading up to the amazing strike effects the strike gains that were just made since we're talking about the effects kind of the fallout in the wider industry mm-hmm. do we want to wait till after yeah let's wait till after okay let's 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 go, the story. let's go through the whole story of the UAW all the way back from the 1930s, and then we'll end on how the UAW is affecting us today and what's going on in the larger car industry because of the UAW. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I'll let you begin. Okay. So how did the UAW happen? UAW was founded in 1935, right? So you've got the auto industry in the U.S. is just starting to kick off. Obviously, you have Henry Ford, who is this industrial legend, um, building up all these factories, specifically in the Midwest, and Detroit is kind of the the home, the main enclave for this. And the UAW forms to represent the workers. Um, 1935, FDR is in office, right? So he's a very pro-worker 
pro-union president, mm -hmm. um, they have the environment ready. And quickly, the UAW gains a reputation as a fighting union. Oh, yeah. They spawned out of the American Federation of Labor, the AFL, right? Mm. They spawn out of the AFL. But the AFL has some problems. The AFL is very focused on craft workers, on skilled labor workers, mm. and kind of looks down on the non-skilled non factory-style workers. Okay. So at this 1935 convention uh, for the AFL, a group of industrial uh, workers form their side their side organization led by John L. Lewis, who okay. led the United Mine Workers. And he founded the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO, in combination with the UAW. This is the more militant win of the labor movement. Okay. And the AFL expels the CIO from the AFL in 1936 for being too militant, for being too explosive to or too expansive to the unskilled laborer. Wow. So there's this massive fight between the CIO and the AFL. Today, we see our posters. It says AFL-CIO. But they were split for a long time. They've only came, come back together in the 70s. Okay. So that, that is how intense the UAW really was in this beginning moment here. Yeah, yeah. And the, the battles between unions and the companies on the other side were so intense, like so much more than we could even imagine. There were violence. Oh, like, dude, I have. Yeah, yeah. They were violent consistently. And the UAW gained their reputation because they would fight off armed thugs and local police hired by companies to come and shut them down. Yes. Right? The perfect example of this is in Flint, Michigan. Yeah. So Flint, Michigan is where in 1936, the UAW basically like faint, invents is the strong word there, but really makes this a prominent strategy called the sit-down strike. And what the sit-down strike does... <laughs> That's different from all other types of strikes is that instead of the workers not going to work, instead of the workers um, picketing outside, the unions would sit down in the workplace, physically occupy the plant and forcibly keep management and others out by remaining inside of the factory. That made sure that the that the that the or that the bosses couldn't bring in strike breakers yeah. this got so like intense and large that these unions started to elect their own mayors inside of the factories to keep things in order they had their own sanitation teams they had their own postal service teams they even set up little judicial systems for rule breakers and would punish people to clean dishes or in the worst case scenario kick them out of the strike that's insane they literally took over these buildings yeah and what i think is so great about the sit-down strike in 1936 is a lot of the meals that these guys were eating were actually supplied by the outside community for free in solidarity with the workers wow and that's so, awesome like you were saying with the violence dude mm -hmm. the police oh my god they were in general motors pocket for this yeah in their pocket dude at one point the local police used tear gas and tried to force their way into the factory but the workers were just throwing bottles at them yeah pushing them out of the building um the vice president to roosevelt actually wanted to use the army to break the strike. The vice president to Theodore Rose, uh, to Theodore Rose, to Franklin Roosevelt wanted Roosevelt to throw the army at him. And Roosevelt said no. Holy shit. Love Roosevelt for that, man. That's ER. insane. Court orders eventually ordered the union to leave the premises, but they ignored it. And what <laughs> I love about this is they waited for the perfect time to do it. What do I mean by that? So 
This strike only went on after Frank Murphy started his term as Michigan's governor. Why was this a good idea? Because Frank Murphy beat an incumbent Republican and was a worker-ish friendly governor. And because of that, uh, Governor Murphy sent in the Michigan National Guard not to evict the workers, but to protect the workers from the local police. Wow. And stop them from corporate strike break. That's epic. That's epic. And you know yeah. what that, that, that also shows me, dude? There is a real genuine point to electoral politics. Because when you have the right people in office, they're going to help you with these types of organization mass movement movements. Yes. Right? Think of FDR caving to MLK and voting for the Civil Rights Act. Think of uh, Governor Murphy in Michigan in 1936 sending the National Guard in to defend the workers. Think about FDR denying his vice presidential plea to send in the army. Yeah. It matters, man. Totally. So that's just Flint, Michigan. Eventually, the workers, because of this strike, got a 5% raise increase, and they were able to talk about the union over lunch breaks. Mm. And because they were they got that right, 100,000 UAW members were signed up over the next year. Oh, my God. It's amazing. It's amazing. So Flint, Michigan was just craziness, dude. Yeah. Craziness. That's super cool. You might st- I think you still have more On than Flint? me. Yeah. At, or at... In this period. I don't have a ton between oh. 35 and the end of the war. Oh, good. I have a lot on the 30s. So that's perfect. Yeah. That fills in a lot of my gaps. So after they take down General Motors, right, they now switch focus. They're going to now target Ford. Mm-hmm. And Ford is way more organized than General Motors. Ford has espionage rings set up. They wow. have private investigators following union organizers around the, around the, around the state. <laughs> they have violence prepared to quell any type of union action. And this culminates in the Battle of the Overpass. It's crazy that we have names for these types of moments in our history. Yeah. When it's just people looking to get better pay for their work. That is what's wild to me. Like, all of this is driven by just the profit motive. It's, it's all it is. And it's so funny because, like, my my general outlook on the world is to be less engaged by money mm-hmm. or, like, driven by it. Yeah. And so, at some level, it seems silly to me, but... You can't look at it if as silly if it's driving this kind of action, this kind of violence, if it's yep. affecting people's lives and how they feel this much, even if you feel like it's not that big of a deal. Yep. These guys will do anything for a dollar, yep. and that'll include breaking the back of a union organizer. So yep. UAW organizers at the GM plant decided to expand their union, and they started handing out pamphlets to 90,000 Ford workers as they were getting off work. Well... Um, police and Ford private security quickly swarmed this group of people. Um, union organizers, including Walter Ruther, who we'll get back to, um, he and Richard Frankenstein, another one of these UAW organizers, were asked by a Detroit newspaper photographer to pose for a picture over the overpass. And when they posed, the Ford policemen and Ford private security attacked and came up behind them and beat both of the men. They beat 40 men and actually broke one of the men's backs. Wow. Ford then tried to attack the media and destroy the pictures of the attack that the Detroit news photographer took. But the news outlet was able to escape the Ford police and publish them the next day. (laughs) Wow. It's insane to me that this happened. Um, But you know what happened after this? This only helped the UAW in the media. Because right after this, in 1941... um, this, okay, so after this, 
This led to a strike in 1941, which then concluded with a signed contract between Ford and the UAW. Now, that means Ford, GM, and I skipped over Chrysler, but Chrysler wasn't as dramatic. Mm. Chrysler, that was the invitation of the Big Three, mm. 1941. That's when the Big Three is formed. Okay. And so in 1946, I think I'll have this, and then I'll kick it to you. Okay. So in 1946, Walter Ruther, the guy who was just attacked at the Battle of the Overpass, becomes president of the United Auto Workers. Yeah. Well, who is Walter Ruther? Walter Ruther um, was a militant labor organizer in our history. Um, he actually had some associations to the Socialist Party in his youth. Um, and him and his brother, Victor Ruther, were very, very prominent actors in the, in the, labor, in the labor movement, mm -hmm. um, even prior to becoming president. They used to work on building T-model Fords in uh, Henry Ford's plant. That's what they were doing. Okay. Um, and eventually, Henry Ford sold his rights to the T-model Ford to the Soviet Union. So the Soviet Union was going to start building T-models. I see. And Walter and, and Victor took the opportunity to say, you know what? We'll go to the Soviet Union and we'll train these workers on how to build the T, the Model Ts. So they go to the, okay. they go to the Soviet Union and they tour around there. And it's a really good experience for them. It really opens their eyes to a lot of things. But what they notice is that these factories were actually way worse than the American factories. Mm. And Walter Ruther starts writing letters to the Moscow Times trying to get them to force the local Soviet to change policy and have better worker regulations. Well, the Ruthers were doing this so much that they eventually started to form their own union outside of the Soviet. And uh, they were blacklisted from the Soviet Union. They were kicked out of the country for leading a strike wow. after demanding better working conditions. It is alleged Khrushchev, when he visited the United States, said Victor Ruther was the type of guy they killed in 1917, which is just it's wild. It's such a badass thing to have said about you. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it is. Um, okay, so I can pick up. I've got stuff about Walter and Victor, his brother. Um, but first, I want to set the stage of like, what does the American economy that the UAW now exists in look like? Yeah. So Walter and Victor Ruther, they're elected to lead the UAW in like 1946. So this is right after World War II. And the American, the American economy was about to boom, right? Massively for decades. And a huge part of that was the automobile. Highways were being built rapidly everyone now was getting a car there had actually been a little bit of a dip in households owning cars during the war because the materials like steel and rubber were they needed to go to the military rather than to civilians but now they were completely freed up right and so in this kind of environment you have gm the american car maker being the top company on the fortune 500 in its first ever iteration in 1955 and then it topped the list for 37 of the next 45 years. That's insane. It was the number one Fortune 500 company. Wow. Um, so the automobile industry was just the peak of the U.S. economy, right? And that meant that the UAW had more power over how employees were treated in the American economy than anyone else. It didn't only create contracts for the auto workers, but it also trickled down into employees of all the supplier companies, right? Rubber suppliers, glass, steel, copper, aluminum manufacturers. They looked to the UAW and those employees said, hey, look at how well they're treating their workers. Mm -hmm. We want to be treated just as well. Yeah. Um, so then you have 
Victor and Walter Ruther coming in 1947. They take control and they're pretty good leaders of the union, right? They achieve really big salary raises, health insurance, pensions, supplements to unemployment insurance, paid vacations. So they're treating their workers pretty well, but their faction, the administration caucus is what they're called, they stuck to a relatively narrow lane of increasing the standards of living for their employees, which means what they left off the table was a say in how management ran their plants. Mm. Um, and this meant that working conditions were often dangerous and oppressive, even though the workers were getting more money and better benefits. So the other thing that the Ruthers did is they cracked down on opposition hard. The administration caucus ran the UAW as like a one-party state for decades. And yeah. actually, up until the election earlier this year to get Sean Fain as the president. So they they took down all of their enemies. They used intimidation tactics. And the funny thing about you saying that they had socialist involvement early on and then visited the Soviet Union and said that their factories weren't good enough is that the Ruthers used Red Scare tactics to put down their rivals within the Union wow. when they were there. It was like someone called... Um, Walter Ruther, the McCarthy of the UAW. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so this is how they discredited any competition that they had in the union. They ruled with an iron fist. Yeah. And I've talked before about how it's okay, I think, for people in power to consolidate a lot of that power if they use it wisely. The problem is eventually leadership changes, right? Eventually, it's not Walter and Victor Ruther who... Are, who have successfully raised standards of living for their employees. Mm -hmm. Eventually, it changes. And what happens is, in 1970... Okay, so um, in the 1970s, the economy starts to decline. Yes. Right? We before hit, we get... Can yes, I, go, go. Before the 1970 break, yeah. I want to call out the 1947 strike okay. after World War II. Yeah. Because it was one of the largest strikes in American history. This was right after World War II, like you were talking about. Walter Ruther just got elected, mm -hmm. and so he leads to the strike. 320,000 workers go on strike, um, and they have the initial goal of a 30% wage increase. Um, this doesn't just stop there, and by 1947, the goal expands. Um, sorry, I meant to say 1945 before, not 35. But in 1947, the goal is expanding. And the groundbreaking result is a cost of living increase, which is the first time this has ever happened in American history. Mm -hmm. The the Ruther brothers and the UAW invents the cost of living increase, where it's your wages get increased by inflation every year. Mm -hmm. um, the end of the strike, the workers will have the right to bargain over health benefits, unemployment benefits, pension benefits, expanded vacation time, um, and rises in wages. And what this becomes known as, it call it's called Ruther's Treaty of Detroit. Yes. And it's the basis of the modern-day middle-class lifestyle. Mm -hmm. um, you think about all the benefits you get when you sign on to your uh, uh, your employment uh, offer letter. You, you The first things you read about are your, what's my retirement account? Mm -hmm. How many vacation days do I get off? What's the health insurance like? That's because of the UAW's work in the 40s. But you know what's funny? Is I read about the Treaty of Detroit as well. Okay. And the automakers saw that as a price they absolutely were willing and happy to pay. Wow. Because again, 
the unions didn't have any say in how they ran the companies. Wow, this is really interesting to me because yeah. you know you know my position is my whole thing is that they need more power to run the companies. Exactly. And they gave that up. And they gave that up, but and specifically cracked down on any union activity that tried to get more of that. In 1973, there was a wildcat strike that shut down one of Chrysler's plants to protest unsafe working conditions. And the UAW vice president sent over a thousand administration caucus loyalists with baseball bats and pipes to beat the strike leaders oh at the local plant. Oh my God. Okay. They like, they ruled this thing like mobsters. That's disgusting. Yeah. They were not okay with the union not falling into line with them and only negotiating with companies strictly on the administration caucus's terms. Okay. So... This becomes really important, and the union really starts to get weakened in the 70s. After stagflation, with a struggling economy, the UAW makes concessions, okay? Chrysler is in really bad shape. It looks like it's about to go bankrupt. And Chrysler is looking for a bailout from the government. They ask for a $1.5 billion loan to stay in business. And the government says yes, but on the condition that Chrysler has $2 billion in in savings, so the go the government can know that it can make good on the loan. One billion of those savings come out of UAW concessions, okay? And the UAW agrees to it because the union leaders are still treated super well. And because when you have a one-party system, they're able to consolidate the power and the money and the comfort up to the top, and then they'll do whatever they can to keep it for themselves. That's what's happened that's what happened for decades wow. in the union. And I'm going to keep talking about how that went. So in return for the concessions, UAW leaders asked for what are called joint programs. Okay, This is where union leaders could assign certain members to positions away from the factory. They were called training programs. Okay, And they would happen in these super nice facilities, beautiful buildings, mahogany furniture inside. And it's like, okay, so you, you union workers who are loyal to the administration caucus, we're going to take you out of these shitty factories. We're going to put you with this cushy desk job and you're going to be in this joint training program where you're just bringing up the new generation of workers. And so they were rewarding people who were loyal to the administration caucus. These joint programs were funded by both the UAW and the automakers. And eventually the UAW was given company credit cards to be able to use the money in these jointly funded programs. And then it became a source of personal enrichment for union leaders. One of the executives from the automakers said, if you see anything you want, use the company card. Um, when union leaders didn't take from the companies, they could take directly from their members. Um, former UAW presidents were part of a cadre of officials who embezzled more than a million dollars from the UAW. Um, when one former, one retired UAW staff member said, when someone in a one-party state decides to steal money, the tendency is not to expose the culprit, but to cover it up so it doesn't look bad on the caucus or the union. Okay, so the automakers saw the joint programs as an opportunity to extract concessions from the union because they could gift this to the union leaders who now didn't really care about how it trickled, how the union yep. workers got treated, right? And they had to 
pay much, much less because of that. Um, and then so as this union is weakened, we were just talking about that, about them as the vanguard of unions in the country, right? And all of these other manufacturing employees would look at the UAW and follow their lead to bargain for better conditions for them. And the same thing, of course, happens when the UAW gets less power. Now all employees across the U.S. have less to work with as far as their own bargaining. And this, of course, is really important in the context of an American auto industry that is more saturated by foreign manufacturers. Yes, that's super important. In the 70s, a lot of foreign manufacturers move in and they move to the South. They build a lot of plants in the South where the UAW has like no reach. And they also have very, very terrible labor laws in the South. Yes, the state governments are super anti-union. They give generous subsidies to... to the companies. So you have like BMW coming to South Carolina. You've got Toyota with uh, with factories in the South. You've got Volvo with factories in the South. And this gets to the point where even now, only 16% of auto workers are in unions, mm-hmm. right? And so now instead of the union having all this power to push their, their power or to push how much say they have in the company and to push their own living conditions further up, Instead, the big three, the negotiators for the companies are like, look at all of these companies that don't have unions. The only way we can compete with them is for you to make concessions. It's for you to allow us to pay you less, to give you worse conditions. Um, And so this balance has completely shifted. And of course, part of this is the tiered wage system, which we've now talked about for several weeks on this show where when the recession came in 2007 2008 union leaders gave up the ability for all workers to be paid equally and instead said okay we'll pay workers who have been here longer more money and pay workers that have been here for less time less money even though they're doing the exact same jobs so this keeps building up building up building up Okay. Sorry, I'm, I'm on a roll. No, you're good. The only thing point. I would add here is yeah. that UAW membership starts dropping. So mm-hmm. like it peaks in 1970-something at like 1.5 million, mm-hmm. and it just declines rapidly from there. And today, we're around 400,000, 391,000 members. Yeah, which is extremely sad. So Hopefully sad. Hopefully, we'll be seeing a turnaround. Hopefully. But so this is building up 2007 tiered wage system. Discontent is building among the rank and file, Right. In 2015, it built up so much that they voted against a contract agreed upon by leadership. That almost never happens. Never, right? But And leadership would make sure it never happened because if they came with a contract that um, the, the rank and file didn't like, they would just come back and say, we tried again, but here's the same contract. That's the best we could get. And they would keep wearing them down and wearing them down until the union members just thought, we can't get any better. There's no point in resisting. There's no point in fighting for change. Yeah. We're just going to take whatever we can get. Um, and then something happened in 2019 where there was a federal probe into corruption in the UAW. And they find that UAW officials spent over a million dollars of union money from 2014 to 2018. Wow. One former president got the union to build him a $1.1 million lakeside cabin just because he was a member of the administration caucus. And he proposed this at one of their meetings. And since everybody 
since it was just a we're pandering to the leaders, they accepted it right on its face. Jesus Christ. Another former president, Gary Jones, had his house raided by the FBI and they found wads of cash in his garage <laughs> that he had embezzled from the union. What? So finally, the union members are galvanized to make change. And that is how we got where we are today. So we see another faction finally rise up within the UAW, which is called UAWD, United Auto Workers for Democracy. And they're promising no concessions and stronger negotiating tactics. They ran our boy, Sean Fain, as president. He won his election by less than a thousand votes. So close. In a race, race where over 130,000 people voted. So super close. An absolutely huge victory. And a big part of this was because the UAWD succeeded in bringing together white-collar workers and blue-collar workers to push their agenda at these conferences, basically, where the UAW wasn't run really democratically for a while. It was run by delegates yeah. from different people at local, at local factories um, in local districts. And so since the administration caucus had such power, usually they would shut down anyone in these local districts that would oppose them. But by bringing together these different types of workers, the UAWD was actually able to get some of its proposals um, on the ballot, including the initiative to make leadership voting one person, one vote. And that's how we were eventually able to get Sean Fain. That's unbelievable. Yes. I knew the election was close, man, but that is, that that's out of house of cards. Yeah. It, this story is absolutely crazy. I was like mind blown when I was re reading about it. God, the amount of respect I have for Sean Fain after I that, know, right? I know. And now, and I'll just reiterate what Sean Fain just won, 11% raise off the bat. 25% in the four and a half years to come. Ability to strike when plants are threatened to close. And this is huge because this is what we're talking about as far as having a say in how the companies are run, right? That's exactly what you're looking for. That's exactly what the administration caucus never allowed. And now the workers are going to have a say. Hell it's yeah. fantastic. God, it's so good. Yeah. Ah, uh, and, and uh, go. I was going to go... I was going to zoom out for unions generally. Do you yes. have any more in UAW? No, that's what I want you okay. to do. So unions are having a moment in America right now, and it's really amazing to see. Yeah. Um, Gallup keeps track of the approval or disapproval of labor unions, and currently 67% of Americans have a positive view of organized labor. That is the highest since 1967. Can I just say, this is another perfect example of why it feels just like a messaging problem for Biden. So Because he is so pro-union, and he's done things that help unions so much. So much. You need to get people to understand that. They love unions. They're pro-union. They should love you. That's what I was saying on the last episode. It's awesome how good of a job he's doing appointing good people to the NLRB. Yes. Where is your ads about it? Where is your ads about you on the picket line with the UAW? Where is that ad? Yes, exactly. It's, it's like, it's a perfect photo op. Perfect. Too. It's perfect. Ah, God. Okay. So now, why are unions having such a great moment in America right now? Well, I want to take us back to 2021 with the end of COVID or us coming out of COVID. Okay. And this thing trends on social media called Striketober. It's kind of sort of a joke. It's a kind of like a lot of LARPy socialists online saying <laughs> Striketober. And then all of a sudden, the AFL-CIO picks it up and the UAW picks it up and SAG-AFTRA, the, the writers pick it up. 
and a lot of Hollywood guys pick it up. And then Nabisco picks it up, and you're like, wait a second, is this a thing? And then it starts getting on the news, and the news starts talking about Striketober. And 25,000 workers go on strike in the month of October in 2021. Um, this is coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic, and economists regard um, this as a general response to the Great Resignation. Or after COVID-19, workers felt ha they had a lot more power as the labor participation rate was lower. Mm -hmm. And there were less people in the labor force, more demand for labor, and workers had the economic ability to bargain more for better wages. And specifically, the COVID-19 pandemic exposed poor working conditions across the United States and that workers really felt that the system was rigged against them and they also felt that their jobs were essential. Do you remember that moment in 2020 and 2021 where we called people who went to work during the pandemic essential workers? Well, all those people felt essential for the first time in their lives and they were going to demand to be paid like somebody who's essential as they rightfully should be mm -hmm. so strikes broke out in hollywood nabisco um kellogg don john deere john deere was a massive strike a massive victory for the workers in john deere and kellogg's i remember both of those there were healthcare nurse strikes over in worcester massachusetts even there were mcdonald's strikes there there were strikes across higher education and more and What's interesting is at this point in 2021, Joe Biden, his first year president, he does not support the striking workers. He said specifically that his administration would not get in the middle of negotiations. And that all changes because over the course of the next two years, there was only an explosion of union support and of of union activity, which culminates into the UAW strike, which culminates into the writers-actors strike. And through 2021 through 2022, the number of union jobs were added. We added 200,000 new union jobs between 2021 and 2022. The overall percent of workers represented by unions fell from 11.6 to 11.3, but that's because the rate of non-union jobs outgrew the rate of union jobs growing. But it's still good that union jobs are on the rise, at least. And these union jobs were growing in some interesting states. 40,000 union jobs in Alabama and 72,000 union jobs in Texas. These are not union-friendly states, and they grew there nonetheless. Yeah. And there is more and more interest among the American population in joining a union. In 2017, half of the country, 48% of workers, would vote to unionize their workplace if they could. This, um, compare this to numbers from 1977, where that number was 32%. That's a massive increase. Yeah. And now, since the rise of unionization and more labor organization since 2017, I guarantee you that 48% number is higher. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Fantastic. Dude, I just love... I, there is nothing more energetic than people fighting for what they're worth. I know. Well, just for, from labor taking, taking the money from management basically, right? Yeah. Like I just think about all the, I always think about the stock buybacks oh, that never. I hope will not happen anymore because this money will be going to workers, mm -hmm. right? And I think that grows our economy faster. Because oh, way faster. Way faster, because consumption... It produces things. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's not It's not rent-seeking. Like, it's so... It's the easiest economic equation in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
<clears throat> um, so that's the history of the UAW. Yeah. Their ups, their downs, and their righteous return to glory. Oh, my God. After after like 40 years, 50 years of a weakened union. And now it's just amazing that we are sitting here and we're watching like the reinvigoration of the labor movement across the country. Yep. Right? Yep. It's, it's, it's an amazing thing to live through. And it's an amazing thing to support. Yeah, to show our support to, to show our solidarity to, to donate to their strike funds. It's a, it's such a fucking, it's such an honor to be a part of that. Yeah, you know. And if you know anyone, or if you personally can get involved in any way, please do because there is no better time. No better time. We will be providing resources in episodes to come on how to go about um, getting involved in union activity mm-hmm. um, and also political activity as elections come near and we will be discussing and giving you guys resources to get involved because that's what this is all about so stay tuned for that absolutely um i want to now end on what the uaw has done for the workers today so we've gone over what they've won in their specific agreements right cost of living adjustments are back 35 percent raises or 32 percent raises over the course of the next four and a half years as the term of the contract they won uh they won um, better retirement accounts. They've won better working conditions. They've run the right to strike for closing plans. No tiered wages. They've run. They've ran. They they won no tiered wages. So the lowest paid worker is going to go from making eighteen an hour to forty an hour. Amazing progress. Awesome. But you know what else is amazing about this is that it's not just affecting the UAW workers. It's affecting all the workers in the auto industry. Mm-hmm. This is what happens when workers fight for their rights. Every company gets scared that their companies are going to do the same. Mm-hmm. So days after the UAW won their tentative deals with the big three, Toyota says it is boosting its top pay to $0.34.80 an hour, cutting wage progression to four years from eight years, and is increasing PTO for all of its employees. Okay. And I want to very specifically say, this is good. Great. For any Toyota workers. I'm happy and you, you got it. you should absolutely not be satisfied with it. And you yeah. can absolutely not allow this to appease you to not unionize. This is their tactic to get you not militant, to get you feeling like you're not essential, to get you feeling like you don't deserve more. Yeah. This is them throwing pennies at the problem. It's time for you to get the whole damn dime. Yes. Don't. Uh, and I know... I, I can I can imagine, right? Like these are people. These are people who are dealing with managers who they now feel more connected to because they were just given raises. But I'm sorry because these companies are trying to manipulate you through those people. Absolutely. Even if your manager isn't the one who this raise came down through, I'm sorry. It is not only better for you, but it is better for the entire country's economy. So much better. To work to unionize. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it, these wages are nothing personal. If you got these wages, it's not because you were a good worker, dude. Mm-mm. It's because they're afraid of you realizing that your labor is worth so much more than yes. what they're paying you. Yes. That's what they're afraid of. Yeah. Um, and Bloomberg did a, a study and they're analyzing the wage increases and they have found that the U.S. workers are getting record breaking wage hikes this year because of strategic strikes and stunning contract wins that's their adjective not mine yeah the result is a boost in middle income wages and a shift in the balance of power between companies and their employees between 1988 and 2023 right so 1988 
average wage increases were around 4%. In the 20 in the 2000s and the 2010s, it went all the way down to 1%. 2% was the average throughout the 2010s. This year, it's over 6% wage increases. It's enormous. That's because of wage activity. Yeah. Unbelievable Higher progress. Higher than we've seen in 30 years. Higher than we've seen in 30 years. And that's just goes to show you the true power of organized labor. Yeah. So now, Toyota, they're, they're throwing pennies at the problem, hoping that it'll go away. Well, what's happening to Tesla? For the first time in Tesla's history, they are being affected by a strike. Not a strike in the United States, but a strike in Sweden. The strike was called by the industrial labor union IF Metall. The union's decision follows five years of, refus of refusal by Tesla's Swedish subsidiary to negotiate to a collective bargaining agreement between the employees and repair shops across the company. Yeah, this is kind of like an unstoppable force meaning an immovable object because Tesla has a policy of not collective bargaining with any of its plants, any of the employees at its plants. But meanwhile, in Sweden, the vast majority of their workers are unionized. Yep. So they're not just going to lay down and let Tesla do this to them. Absolutely not. There are 470 <clears throat> workers in 16 cities that will be affected in this next phase of striking, and it's only expanding out. Yeah. This is, um, this is big, as Tesla is currently Sweden's top-selling car. Yeah. So this is putting a lot of strain on one of their bigger markets here. And Sweden has a history of taking these companies to task. Mm -hmm. In 1995, Toys R Us entered Sweden. And Toys R Us initially refused to sign a collective bargaining agreement to the retail union. Totally was not going to do it. Um, eventually, the company had to concede after three months of labor strife. This included solidarity strikes, which means that other unions blocked all deliveries garbage collection, postal services, bank payments, and vital part of the firm's operation in the country. That is so cool. This Solidarity strikes are illegal in the United States. Really? Yeah. Wow. Sit-down strikes are also illegal now in the United States. <laughs> okay, Biden administration, get on that. Get on the, that shit, man, This please. is just such a good example, though, of why they're, like, from a philosophical perspective, so often you hear that competition is the thing that drives an economy. Well, this is an example of how collectivization drives an economy and how collectivization lifts people up there's an idea that like unions are wage cartels that make people get paid less than they're worth no this is what people are worth okay this is how you prevent companies from siphoning away all worker power and not recognizing what they have absolutely absolutely yeah i and think sorry no you go no you go tesla isn't only fading facing trouble in sweden they're also facing this trouble in germany mm -hmm. tesla is um has a booming factory um in germany and they are forced to boost pay in this German plan amid an aggressive unionization drive, a move that comes as chief executive Elon Musk may face similar organizing challenges in the United States per Bloomberg. So this is amazing. This is like an international movement to unionize Tesla. Yeah. And it's just so amazing to see it. And the United States is going to get on this. Sean Fain already says that they're going to get on this. Yeah. And the next two years are going to be an incredible moment. And they need to have our full support, our full solidarity. They're, uh, man. UAW, so exciting. the people have your back a thousand percent. 